Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Sniper Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello! Ooh, that was loud. And we have with us as well Sydney Film Critic. Chris and filmmaker Chris Evans. I do a bit of both. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. So we have one of our biggest shows because we are talking about some of the biggest things in the universe. We are talking the biggest things ever, bigger than Texas, bigger even than the Hungry Jack's Texas Whopper Burger. Exactly. I mean, everything uh, is ads now, and Game of Thrones and Marvel are the same thing, and other hot cakes and hot takes. <gasps> hot cakes <laughs> coming soon to a Hungry cakes. Jack's near you. This episode's not actually um, sponsored by Hungry Jack's. No. This week's episode of Pancake on the Rocks. So it is not because it is we the, are talking... we're going to review two of the biggest pancakes on the rocks this week: <laughs> one Marvel <laughs> and Game of Thrones. This yes. is like. Wow, that's a very good reference to see Roger's ass. Yes, we are talking. We will get into. Oh, I can't say that. We will get into Avengers Endgame as well as the Battle of Winterfell, which has just screened two of the biggest events of the year, which screened within five days of each other and were seen by many within five days of each other. Nerd Nirvana is here. I am so glad it's over. We will also be talking later in the program with, oh, it's a big program, Jeffrey Gardner, the director of Cinema Reborn. A the, really cool film festival with a lot of classic films that are rarely seen screening in Sydney cinemas. In the Ritz, my favorite Sydney cinema. I no know. Less. Cinema Reborn. We will also be talking with Dr. Ender Murray, the director of the Irish Film Festival, now in its fifth year. Both Cinema Reborn and the, well, Cinema Reborn is starting Thursday night through to Sunday night at the Randwick Ritz, whereas the Irish International Film Festival starts the night in Penrith, but then runs from the second tomorrow through to the fifth at the Chevelle Cinema in Paddington. We will also be chatting with uh, two of the directors who are out from Ireland screening two of the films. One is Sean Murray, the director of Unquiet Graves. And the other is Dave Tynan, the director of Dublin Old School. Both films are streaming this weekend, and we'll be talking with both directors later in the program. But first, we are talking about, oh dear, Avengers Endgame. Now, you may be confused because we did talk about Avengers Endgame last <sighs> week. However, that was our very difficult spoiler yeah, live spoiler-free that, discussion. That was our truncated, castrated... Taking the balls out of out of film man club. <laughs> Driving rings around what we yeah. couldn't say and couldn't talk about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And various how, how other, conser- you know, freedom of speech, etc., uh, and other conservative catchphrases. How dare they stop two men talking about things? You know, it's very difficult. We are in a world where men should be able to speak their minds. In a world where men can no longer speak their minds, <laughs> Film Fight Club are unashamed to come out swinging. So <laughs> That's this- why we're joined by three men now. So this yep. is a... You're warned now, a spoiler discussion of both Avengers Endgame and Game of Thrones, all the way up to the most recent episode, Battle of Winterfell. It is spoilers for both discussions. We're spoiling everything. You have been warned. We're going to really spoil it. If you haven't seen it until this point, I don't think you care. 
You don't well, care. Well, I haven't so. seen. Yeah, I'm. I am that person. I'm here to represent those values, and I'm fine listening in on the spoilers because you know for Game yeah. of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. but because it's all right. You know, seen Avengers. You probably, probably. Yeah, if you haven't seen either of them, that's truly extraordinary. But also, like you Jeffrey might be Gardner, saving I'll guess later in the episode but, but, from Cinema Reborn, who has chosen rightfully, I would say, but it's a matter for debate, um, just to live in the world of this stuff that he knows he'll love, and he's created a whole festival around that. And, yeah, exactly. And, Power to him. He's kept himself mentally happy in his film explorations, <laughs> Not having rather to than through. subjecting himself to the obligatory Game of Thrones and Marvel episodes. Yeah, 22 movies and now 68, 69 episodes. It's a lot. But Chris and I got into a lot of discussion about Avengers Endgame last week. We're going to continue. But first, we haven't heard about Endgame from Virat. So we want to hear from you, man. What did you think of Avengers Endgame? Okay, first of all... I had to pay a lot of money to go and see this movie, and I was not very happy and about Hoyt's it. And Hoyt's website tried to stop you, too. Uh, yeah. Yes, okay. So, we have a thing called Hoyt's here, which is... A, a, a Hoyt's Cinemas. Cinema Corporation, hosting another corporation, which is, like, weird. You know, Marvel is another corporation, and so with Hoyt's. So, like, capitalism coming together to, like, yeah, serve... Yeah, well, of course. But Marvel it's like... They should sell us movies. Exactly. And then they don't do the thing that they're supposed to do, which is, like sell me a thing and their website crashed so i'm like capitalism is really not working well here i mean it's a classic example if the only thing that you're supposed to do is like sell me a movie ticket and an overpriced uh you know f- platform and then make me buy whatever at least do it correctly you know don't make me feel guilty about it so i had to struggle to firstly get that ticket you know it was just because you know I, I, all the best seats were taken, so it was only extreme screen and a recliner seats. So I had to pay premium. Is so real. We were at the front, executive front row. Oh, on the dude, far right. it was really hard in this session because we were, as you know, in the corner of the front corner of the VMAX. So we're craning our heads up to see the slightly blurry image. With you know the the image looks kind of dark because you're in the corner rather than seeing the light from the angle it's meant to be seen at. It's it's all right, but God, it's hard. But on top of that, we were seeing it on the opening day. I've seen the film since on a Saturday, and you know what the big difference was? I was able to hear all of the dialogue this time around because the first time, whenever anything mildly of interest happened, everyone went up in cheers. No, no, no. And I'm it gonna, got kind no, of weird when no. they cheered Robert Downey Jr. and Scarlett Johansson dying. And the, the, and, the, and on <laughs> the Robert, and the Robert Downey Jr. No, but there was like applause of like, bravo, Marvel, <laughs> truly honest, brilliant human time drama. I think they say that you compared it to Star Wars Summer last week. I think that would have happened to me when Darth Vader died back in Return of the Jedi. But you know what? Yeah, I but, enjoyed but it was cheering. Cool I enjoyed when they that did atmosphere. <laughs> I enjoyed the cheering 12 years when I first watched Iron Man. I liked now. I do, Being I mean, part of that cinema experience is a big deal. I get it's, it. It's, it's just that Marvel is like a plastic collector's edition version action figure of the original experience that was Star Wars films. You know, in the 70s. This is like like nostalgic playing on childhood memories of things like Star Wars and using it to package a corporate story about characters that have existed from merchandising for over 50 years. It's wholly distinct from Star Wars. And replacing it. No, no. But I mean, that kind of template. I mean, I get it. Uh, cheering for Iron Man dying, it, it's fine. But cheering for Scarlett Johansson <laughs> someone, dying... Someone, someone that... shushed a person with the Iron Man. Someone started to, to clap when Iron Man died, and then there was a shush <laughs> You know what it's like? Cinema. It's like at the end of that other Chris Evans movie, not another team <laughs> movie, where it's like the slow clap. It's like, dude, it's not the right time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then one guy is about to do it, and then one guy just comes out... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was like that. Yeah, but it was an awkward screening in more ways than one because whenever these cheers went up, I would then miss the following lines of dialogue 
And sometimes, you know, there'd be a joke and they would cheer before the punchline because they'd cheer at like the setup line towards the punchline. We were in the audience with the world's most enthusiastic for Marvel people. And that heightened the kind of sense of weird alienation, which also made me just go, all right, whatever. You know, sure, this movie is good enough. After seeing the movie the second time, you know, and not just opening my heart to it because of being in that environment. Good Lord. There is some terrible weakness and dumb ideas in this movie. Okay. Firstly, this is a three-hour-long movie, and a lot of people were very anxious about it. I'm used to seeing three-hour-long movies because I'm from Bollywood, and this is just like a normal, everyday thing. He's from Bollywood. <laughs> I, heard, I heard that too. Never has a truer thing been stated. <laughs> My home. I'm Take from the land of dreams. Everyone's <laughs> home, everyone's dancing. My, yeah. Like a big musical number. Everyone's really dancing inside his heart. Yeah. Massive melody. Turned out home was what was in my heart all along. Not, but not even like, you know, the, the actual Bollywood. I'm just talking about the Big Bang Theory version, you know, when the Raj and they all get together and do a very stereotypically <laughs> borderline racist dancing. Can we not but, talk about that show, please? <laughs> okay. Ever. Okay. But, okay, coming back to Avengers Endgame. The, the, the idea that, okay... The problem in this movie is it doesn't really have anything of substance to really hold together its <laughs> runtime. That is the biggest problem. It runs out of steam pretty much five minutes in because the big kind of twist that it pulls and it doesn't know what to do after. And it kind of meanders a lot until we get to the point where all the characters get back together and they really start to decide on what they have to do next. There is a big meandering sort of, you know, after... Okay, I'm going to spoil it. Spoiler discussion. We've said, there's a caveat at the beginning of this episode. Okay. Everything is on yeah, the yeah, table. Yeah. Okay. It's a spoiler discussion. The, the, the only time I was genuinely surprised when Thanos was killed off in the first five minutes. Okay, that was... But right, and it's meaningless. If they had killed him there or left him alive, it wouldn't have made a difference. It's a weightless twist that it shows how the culture has now kind of absorbed epic Game of Thrones moments into the way that we string these narratives together. It's just I, I, there to make I, you go, <gasps> but it doesn't really change the. I way agree. Of the story. I agree. Yes, it, like, does. <laughs> it absolutely changes the direction of the story because they expected, and we expected they go off to these Infinity Stones. We expected three hours about going off. However, to Thanos, and we if they that. hadn't killed, I'm talking about literally just the moment of him being killed. If instead they'd just gone home sad. It wouldn't have made a difference. The story would still have been the same thing if I figured out a way to travel but, back but, in time. But it wasn't, you know what I mean? So it's a moment of to make the audience gasp that doesn't actually change the trajectory more than just the moment of him saying the Infinity Stones are gone does. But, but the problem just Thanos' death. It was the fact that the Infinity Stones are gone. That was the shock moment that they couldn't turn back. I agree. I happened. did feel that was a surprise, but I felt just the like sudden burst of cruelty a dude gets decapitated. It's just like it, a- it, aping it, Game it, of Thrones. It, it, it kind was of weird approach to, but I, sh- I you know, let, shock. Let me let me say one of the few positive things about this movie. That arc, that first five minutes, really set up Thanos as a tragic hero. It was a very interesting twist. It did, on that but then they re- completely you know, failed to follow up on that in the end of the movie. But, but hang on, because what was Thanos's justification? He said, "I snap my fingers, not just to erase half of life, but also to destroy the Infinity Stones themselves, to rid myself of temptation. Because beyond that, there would just be temptation." So, in that sense, you can see him, and he was seeing that he was half dying anyway because of the radiation, because of whatever's happening, and you could just see him doing gardening in a retirement home. It was a very interesting image. And, you know, when the Avengers arrive with their kind of might and fury, he's basically a kind of a lost 
man who's not there to like what is there to fight about anymore so in a way Thanos had already won and you were seeing the aftermath of that of someone who's already won and he's like well I don't need to fight anymore because I've already proven my point that is a very interesting thing to set up only to be undone later on but for those five minutes I was like hang on if this is where they're actually going it has some very interesting emotional and philosophical implications about what is good and evil all right, two points to that. To that end, I really enjoyed the moment, and it was a distinct moment in the film, when Black Widow's talking to, I think it was Captain America, and said, did you notice there are whales in the Hudson? It put a different twist. Suddenly it was not simply Thanos is all evil, not that we're empathizing with him, but, oh, we are seeing a different dimension to this, which is one of the few things that makes Thanos probably the standout villain, with the exception of Daniel Brühl's character in Civil War, of the entire series. I really liked that element of it too, Bharat, but what really got me, what really frustrated about me was the end when the alternate universe Thanos comes in yeah. and he starts going, I realized that I couldn't solve this. Therefore, instead of destroying half the universe, I'm going to go full bad and just be like a dark elf and destroy the whole universe. And that is so frustrating and I hated it and I wish it wasn't in the movie. Well, to me, it just clarified the thought that I had last year, which I remember us talking about back in that episode. Um, it's interesting how we have these long Marvel discussions once a year. At our, zero, at our you know, inception, first birthday and second birthday, we all did long Marvel episodes. We did, and Spider-Man's uh, uh, on its way soon. Yeah, we have... Yeah. Oh, actually, um, hello, Chris Evans, by the way. Hey. You have a really you? sweet ass. I just oh, to yeah. say. oh, Oh, right. Yeah, like, we, we, we're, it's America's ass. But yeah, the point I was trying to make... Australia's ass, Thanos, actually. Uh, God, I want to get to that in a bit. But the... <laughs> but the um, we're just you will. No, um... The the bit I was going to say I was saying last year, which you've just reminded me of, is that there was no consistency in Thanos's characterization. But at the end of it, you, it was like, well, this is one part of the first, you know, of a two part uh, series, so maybe he'll make sense next episode. But it turned out there was actually nothing to follow up on those inconsistencies. He's just a character that can be whatever they want him to be. Case in point, in the original movie, the idea was kind of like Thanos is a tragic hero. He's just doing what he needs to because he feels that he has to do the right thing. However, they complicated that by making him a sadistic psychopath who does things like torture Peter Quill just for the sake of making someone suffer or some like try, wanting to see people die in brutal ways and stuff. And then suddenly he's meant to be sympathetic again at the beginning of this one. Then at the end, it turns out he was just a, like a, I want to destroy the world because destroy the world. Like, is he a psychopath? Is he a, a person who feels it's his tragic duty, which they try to go into with the nebula stuff? Like there's never, it never settles on any of those things. And at the end of the day, what they decide he ultimately always was is like another dumb destroy world, you know, bad, good uh, Marvel villain. But, but it's That's all he was. Everything else was just charade. But it's interesting to see because the whole buildup of trying to get Infinity Stones and doing a finger snap is that Thanos wants to do it without the actual suffering involved. So instead of going on this sort of murder spree, he would just snap his fingers so that people wouldn't even feel anything. <laughs> so he's like, in a way, he's doing a more humane thing. And yet there's nothing consistent in his characterization that portrays him as somebody who actually would want to be a more humane murderer, if there's such a thing, you know, where he's more, this propensity for violence is extreme in the way he, how he treats Nebula, for example. He really relishes in torturing her quite a lot. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's interesting in, in, in his characterization and what they're going for. Is he a sort of a 
misunderstood <laughs> ecological warrior, which is a very interesting characterization. I would be on board with that. But if then they, they were abandon it cons- when push comes to shove. I know. But, so that's the thing. An epic Lord of the Rings battle. Uh, as, as, soon, as soon as he turned the uh, Peter Dinklage's hands into giant iron stone, we know that this I is know. not as complicated a character as we were hoping for. But it's, but it, it's interesting in what sense that dichotomy sets up for the emotional weight that our Avengers have to deal with before they get to undo all of that. By the end of this movie, any emotional weight anything has has been permanently undone. But but the first 20 minutes, and which is what I'm trying to understand, because it was going in a very different direction. I really felt like they were trying to make a point about there is an emotional toll that these heroes are going through. And the actors really do sell it. I mean, I was really on board on that journey. They had very little to play with, but still. uh, Scarlett Johansson and Iron Man. Those... The opening reveals a few things, right? One is that this movie never had the, any... This movie was always going to be a movie of deus ex machinas. It never had the conceptual audacity to, to actually do something like Iron Man dying at the beginning of the movie. Okay. To the point of whether... I want to get back to um, the point that was broadly discussed. Like, on the matter of Iron Man dying, and I think we need to return later in, in real detail to how the major character deaths were handled. Yeah. I appreciated... And it's a similar part of praise I'm going to give to Game of Thrones in a little while, that the death of Iron Man was not drawn out. His grand eloquent speech was at the beginning of the movie, and that worked out quite well. I thought that, but then I realized that he actually does a corporate fellating grand eloquent speech, so they've got to have their cake and eat it too. Immediately after he dies silently, you know, as if he doesn't get to have his hero final words we get to see him as he'd like to be remembered corporate dickhead walking about around the room congratulating marvel on their success but there was a bit of well, sweet you know, 10 years ago it. 10 years ago i had no idea i'd be making 50 million dollars a movie but look at us now against you know epic tales no, no, of cosmic no. intrigue and the world loves us but there's a bittersweet element to that and that he finished it with saying oh look it'll all work out fine i'm not gonna die it's okay and you know what that whole sequence with but it the, was with so, the ellen photo with nothing. every star in the world i felt it nothing. was great and you know who the kid was i think i told you a little kid from iron man 3 I gave all i could to. think over that scene where every star in the world is there at tony stark's funeral is wow this series is just about the elite superhero people now no one who's not from a marvel you know, like a central hero character from the Marvel Universe was at the funeral. It's Tony Stark. How about just having, you know, like his extended family, people who he's worked with, but nope, they're not special enough. You know, he's a, it's this movie is like this Ayn Randian thing where he like he's one of the god ones now or whatever. But also, you know, uh, the, the wreath. So he gets to hang out in the Grey Gardens. The wreath, which said proof that Tony Stark has a heart. That's from the, uh, Iron Man 1. I know, but the, it's so stupid because it's clearly he's set up in tragic narrative and it's like having the ultimate heart <laughs> but also especially with Benedict Cumberbatch who goes to this extreme lens to not reveal when the moment arrives only to give it away It'd be like now is your chance Tony here's your moment you have to die now and I'm like well why then why pretend which actually has a very similar moment in Game of Thrones as well yeah. there's a great um, semi-dishish machina appearance but what did also really grind me about these films in terms of the characters who died and then didn't die. What was wonderful about... Sorry, wonderful is the wrong word. What was refreshing about <laughs> Infinity War was that four major characters prior to Thanos snapping his fingers were killed separate to that. We're talking about Hemdell, we're talking about Loki, we're talking about um, Vision and... Um, Gamora. Gamora. Two of those characters brought back in this film. The characterizations are very 
badly handled. With Loki, he's he, he's brought back and it suggests that, oh, okay, he's alive now. He can do whatever he wants. He has the Tesseract. And suddenly the development which he's undergone through Thor Ragnarok and a few of the other films that was really interesting that surely teases get for more films is gone. And that was a huge emotional heft when Loki, one of the main early mainstays, died at the beginning of, of Avengers. In, yeah, yeah. And, and, and certainly, it yes, Vision tone. is still dead, but you just upended that as we're hoping would have happened. Worse than that, Gamora being brought back. Now, Gamora was oh, a man. character who had a lot of great character development over the course of the first Guardians of the Galaxy film, and they shoehorn that into a few minutes off screen where apparently she undergoes the same arc by the Karen Gillan character simply saying, oh, in this universe, you're good, and you like Peter Quill, and Thanos is a bad guy, so you're going to help us now. And the whole film, the whole plot, so depended sure. on that shift happening. But yet, and it wasn't explained, and it didn't that. show it, because it would have been... Um, unbelievable Dis- for good reason but, but but man she's such an unpleasant character like despite having been told what she means to Peter Quill in this universe and agreeing to be part of this universe she still knees him in the balls when it's he's having his romantic it's a cheap, cheap laugh which cheap makes laugh. me think like she's just completely lacking in empathy like it just makes her and well, painting that as funny like there's that, no like strong positive morality in these Marvel films and I want to get to that later it, it's interesting because uh, Nebula for, for all Nebula, her yes. faults uh, actually did become one of the mainstays of this film and also yeah. uh, the, the opening with Iron Man and when they're like, drift in space as such was actually quite poignant and I actually yeah. connected a lot more with that chemistry than any other characters together on screen forever. yeah because no actually because there is and unspoken, and maybe Karen Gillan has to be applauded here, her ability to physically communicate so much and still maintain a stoic kind of characterization is very interesting. And I have to give her props for that because beyond all that prosthetic and bionic makeup, she still was able to communicate a human side to that character, <clears throat> which is very fascinating. But you know what really frustrated me about that scene? At the beginning of, I'll use the example of The Last Jedi, where Finn goes into this coma and suddenly, oh, we need him, we need him in the movie, just have him awake. It was this incredible, terrible, again, Deutsch just smashed a moment, it let's was, just get these characters out so of there. Was, the whole Return of the Jedi thing where even, it was a whole thing staged to get Han out of Carbonite. But it that still wasn't should it have was, delayed, even in Return of the Jedi, it was too early in the piece to bring Han back. You know, that should have been you know near the end of the film. It, it's just kind of like, you came to see this movie to know if Han got out of Carbonite? Well, yep, he, he did. You know, like yeah, we didn't need it. It's easy gratification. Right, uh, yeah, that's immediately. right. Yeah, it was. There were, there were a lot of very frustrating things. To the point we we talked around Atman's getting blown up last week. He should have died. Not There's, getting blown up at all. Yeah, he he took several missiles. As you to said, the that face. was the moment where you realized that all of the stakes were fake. That he <laughs> Atman, who the who is like the the butt of the joke for the whole movie. Gets a yeah. missile landing on him, but they don't have the, the courage to go through with but, him getting destroyed but, in that like, moment. But, but not, not just... Not It'd just, be so brutal, right? Like, yeah. Paul Ride yeah. is, is like, everyone dunks on him, despite him being a, a great guy throughout the entire movie, and then he gets incinerated. But there's, like, three more Ant-Man movies to come. So. I know, I know. But, but also, like, not just... And there's no Black Widow <laughs> movie now. We know this now. There, oh, there might be. I think yeah. they might do it as a way to fill the release schedule. I think they might be going with a five-year gap, so they'll do stories set in the past before they resume. Oh, like Jeremy Renner running around uh, yeah, Japan yeah, yeah. and Mexico. Yeah, but like yeah. Uh, I, not, I'd, actually, I'd watch that. Not, not just, not just, not just Ant Man. Actually, that that scene where uh, you know Thanos 
arrives with the ship and literally just you know rains fire on the entire Avengers thing, like the whole building collapses and then nobody dies. Oh, worse than that, oh, and it's so and, and it's marginally better than what happened in the Game of Thrones. Because battle, that was actually but... a pretty cool evil plot. I was like, you know, actually as an evil villain, I was pretty impressed. But Iron Man, Iron Man was the only one to die in that whole epic mega battle. It was all CGI. The group shot, the main one where everyone was flying towards them side on, was done really badly. Oh, so the shot, stupid. the shot of all Dude, the female so characters much was a lot to better. Say. But there's so much to say about how stupid the entire everything oh, is. Just pure CGI, like, pure look, bedlam. The moment they they give Captain Marvel a cool moment by having her destroy the spaceship by by piercing through it, right, yeah. killing the mothership. But it just made me think: How come no one's attacked the mothership already? The Avengers, you know, specialize in taking down big flying things. You know, like every Marvel movie ends with a sequence like that. But for some reason, in the midst of this huge Lord of the Rings battle, none of them thought, "Let's fly up and, and attack the ship that's shooting missiles at us." No, always go to the air defense. That makes the most sense. But I mean, you have they do air defense at the end movies like uh, Civil War, um, the first, the, first you know, the second event, the, the, the first Avengers, the second Avengers. Um, um, the third Probably Iron Man film. Third Iron Man. It's such a, they do it all the time, yet here, just to give Captain Marvel her cool moment, they don't think to do the thing that they are literally experts at by now. And you, you have Valkyrie. She was the one I referred to who was flying around, obviously, not Captain Marvel. <coughs> she could have helped take out that giant ship. Yeah, she no. just didn't consider it because yeah. Brie Larson good. Oh, so CJ Army. Uh, Damn, like, another okay, one. Uh, talking about Valkyrie brings me to one of the few good things about this uh, film. It's Fat Thor. Let's talk about actually, Fat Thor. Actually, actually, actually. Before we do... Yeah, I, I, you mentioned the this scene of all the women together, and I wanted to talk about oh, how yeah. fake. That. But I have to talk about how fake it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, okay. Let's talk about Scar Jo's death and women and women being handled okay. generally before we get to sure, Fat Thor. Right. Okay. But okay. but the, the what's so fake about that that shot is that it's like give us props, you know, female empowerment or something. But Marvel has taken ages to give a female superhero her first film, and now that they they um. Now that she's been introduced, they're ready to kill off the first one they had, who was whose only virtue, you know, as being on the superhero team, was that she was female. You know, she was like equivalent oh. to Hawkeye in terms of why the hell do they need us on the team? But uh, on that note, also the Shield mainstay. She was I, one of the most intelligent operatives in the like, world. But, but also, it's like it's funny that Hawkeye and Black Widow are the ones who get assigned oh, yeah. to the stone. Well, they don't have to do any cool superhero heroics. All they have to do is just go, yep, I'm not that important to the narrative and throw themselves off the I, cliff. Actually, that scene where they were fighting to do so, to get the other one over, not over the cliff, was really well staged. Two people who have uh, bare it to was basic well staged. It was, it was well staged. It was well staged, I know. I, but, but, but also, still. like, Hawkeye should have died. I mean, he's the most pointless character yeah, that's in the, existence. The, the point is the tragedy of, of the one everyone wanted to die gets, you know, yeah. survives. That's, that's the Marvel. Which, which also kind of shows about the emotional heavy lifting. It's the women who are doing it, right? But back to the, the female scene characters, of all the like, women. Okay. Because like Hawkeye's character doesn't love Black Widow as much as Black Widow supposedly loves Hawkeye because yeah. she's still keeping tabs on him. He kind of uh, wasn't it more that he's wrecking havoc around the world and she works for Shield and yeah. No, no, no. I no. Think there are some was... unresolved, unrequited feelings. Uh, but he's already started a family, so we can't kill him off uh, because uh, we can't uh, kill uh, off a family guy. We need to kill her because she doesn't have a family. Yeah. She only has a proxy family as Avengers. So it's safer to kill her off than somebody who actually has a real family and, yeah. God forbid, hasn't moved on from his crush. Yeah. You know, that that could be 
that could be you know, scandalous as a middle class American, right? Do you know what was really strange? I said the reference to imagine if he had an affair. Oh my god! <laughs> in the Avengers universe with Scarlett Johansson, imagine there's unrequited sexual tension when he started a family and has a daughter. Yeah. Oh my god! We can't have that. I know you know, exactly. Sexual, it's so the fake. Sexual, this universe is the so fake and plastic. The conservative sexual politics of this film is so bloody stupid. And oh my actually, god! Actually, you, know, okay. you, know, you know what was stupid? No, the reference to Budapest again. It's a hark back to the Avengers film, which is a hark back to Buffy somehow. Why do we need to talk about the time they were spending in Budapest? I I, I don't know. Okay, here's why it's all stupid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before you get into it, kind of, I just want to make sure. one small point about. The battle, actually, it's about the filmers in entire. And you know what? The fran- it's actually my biggest criticism of the franchises yep. in entirety. It's the CGI armies yep. and the fact that the film is called Endgame. Endgame is when you have a few pieces left on the chessboard. How good would the final battle have been? And if they had the guts to do this, hmm. if you take just Thanos and his crew of like four mega wizards and verse with the entire Avengers, yeah, that would have been a really cool battle. It would have been so that. much better. But they felt the, this lives in the fake corporate universe where it's like the the boss. Uh, no. How do you know? How do you do? What what does Epic look like? And it's like, oh well, I when I when I Dawson when I talk about <coughs> Epic, I think I talk about Peter Jackson and. And it's like, let's do it like Lord of the Rings did, even though Marvel has never been like Lord of the Rings, well, of the Rings because that's the, the template, and this is the once. epic Return of the King moment. But but and you better fill in with Game of Thrones moments, James. Yeah. At least one shock decapitation that ultimately doesn't matter. It's going to have the Game of Thrones moments. But but it's interesting, like, you know, when... when uh... And it's going to have Pepsi cans with <laughs> Thanos on the cover, <laughs> and it's going to end with an ad for the Pepsi cans and the action figures, I mean, where you I, see I, signatures I, coming up on screen over oh, there right, yeah. box art pose I mean I agree that was kind of elegant uh, that, oh, that, God, that so rant stupid. aside I, I do agree <laughs> I do agree with the fact that you're right Glenn it would have been more poignant if we had the original Avengers against Thanos and his like main yes. wizard bros and we don't have the extra death eating army shit and actually another one. Another and, and also one. also have the guts to not bring back the dead yeah. characters because just have because actually if we look at it this way this is actually a very good introspection on grief and moving on so we have the original avengers who get their shot at redemption by actually doing it right this time and you know which also means they get to move on by making sure the dead remain dead because oh, really that means you know can I... that means that you can't undo certain things that actions do have consequences and that makes a very different movie you reminded me when you were talking about the um real sort of emotional stakes and like looking at grief and moving on that they do at the beginning of the film but that just reminded me of how i found all of that to be completely fake because it seems like it might be real at first, but then any any person who's thinking will see five years later, right, and think they're going to show a world that's moved on in the shadow of that. But in actuality, five years later means nothing to this movie. Um, because at the beginning, in this scene, th- what they show you is still like the world three months after something like that happened. Like, no one's moved on. When I say moved, I moved on, I don't mean to say that people wouldn't be traumatized by it. But I think it would be more like a 9-11 type trauma, just on a more extreme scale. You know what I mean? 3.5 billion is still a hell of a lot of people to be alive in the world, right? 
I know I know that it's I know <laughs> that it's a massive shock. I just can't believe that people would not move on to the extent that they haven't even cleaned up the cars that have that piled up at the moment of impact at the football stadium and the Mets don't play anymore. I think the people involved in the Mets the would Mets. be like, I need something to hold on to in my life. I need to keep doing my job. The Mets is what I do and fuck it, the show must go on, oh, so all right? This, all this, all this rookie... That's what five years later would have really meant. And they, they don't even follow through on it at the end, five years later having gone past and Spider-Man's friend is still in high school instead of in uni. Like, five <laughs> years later meant nothing. It was just another epic Game of Thrones moment okay. like Thanos's head... Oh. You know, I, all right, a few points. I just that. a shock happens to make the audience go, <gasps> but it has no real bearing on the narrative. Okay, a few points to that. It was not a. It, it could very well. It was not established. It could very well be in the case that Spider-Man's friend was also in the same situation as Spider-Man, where he went away for five years. I'm okay, okay. with the whole mess thing because the rookies can you know come up and now play. I am disappointed and frustrated as I've always been in these films. It's a Game of Thrones thing to do. Game of Thrones handled it a little but better. The Mets would be playing. The rookies episode. would become. It's like rookies. You're the, now the new Mets. That they don't explain. <laughs> they do not explain. Wow. That's what happens how in the aftermath of things like this. It affects people on regular folk everywhere. There's no consciousness of how we would go day by day in the superhero world on the matter of grief and how it's handled the five year age gap. Sorry, five year gap. Dude, now oh. it's I'm. Okay, when I started watching this movie, I was terrified they were going to do what they did at the end of Doctor Who Season 3, where 1% of the world died, and they decided, oh, let's turn back time, and the topography, and it's all okay, and now everything's back to normal. They didn't do that. They said, no, we're going to go forward five years. We're not going to change the past. We're just going to make the future better, bringing everyone back. Is this going to be a period of adjustment? But by doing that, and this is one of the most interesting things about this film, one of its most redeeming aspects, is that it doesn't, as has was quite blatantly and parodically stated, follow the Terminator Back to the Future 2 rules about time travel. It follows a different set of rules, which isn't widely used or deployed in mainstream fantasy or science fiction, certainly in The Twilight Zone and some other content you would see theorizing done like this. Certainly Bruce Banner spells it out as this Iron Man, but that allowed an interesting discussion about grief and adaptation, but it also allowed for, at least on this scale of cinema, certainly on this level of cinema, um, a novel approach to how we handle what is otherwise a very tried and tested and done time travel narrative. And you know what? The middle half, the middle third of this film, the hour where it's, let's go on a mission, let's go time travel. Sure, there were some bits that were too retrospective. Sure, there was time that were too... It was the best bit section of that movie. Okay, I need to rewind to what you were saying at the beginning of that when you were talking about how we never really get the sense of how regular people live in this superhero universe. I think you get the barest reference to that here in this trauma support team, but we're only interested in them because Captain America also happens to be on the team with them. More and more, the Marvel movies, which started out as being a thing about Tony Stark and, you know, the people surrounding him, have turned into a thing about superheroes club only, and we're not interested in you if you don't belong there. So that even the characters that would have made up the su- some of the support cast of the first Iron Man movie don't get to be at his funeral in <laughs> by, in the last installment. Who survived the first Iron Man film? The guy from the Iron Man 3 was there. That was enough. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Like, it's none of it's real, you know what I mean? Uh, Talking about none of it is real, the other thing that really annoyed me is we are relying upon the Avengers as a proxy for the entire world, right? So just because these five, six people haven't been able... Hang on. Yeah, that's the point. Uh, 
just because these five or six people have been able to move on doesn't mean the entire world hasn't been able to move on, right? In the next five years, how are we supposed to think that just because these five people haven't been able to carve a life for themselves doesn't mean that other people weren't as emotionally tuned in and they could have, like, somebody could have remarried in these five years and now what? Their former spouse is now alive and they have to feel guilty about it? Like, just imagine for for the little man, you know, we're talking about, you know, how as a little as a, as a real life person in this universe operating who's not a superhero who's just an average joe but no no you no, know? no you're talking as if even the emotions are real for our avengers character in universe and giving the universe that much of a, the benefit of the doubt but the way that they're presented as not having moved on in 5 years turns out not even to be consistent. You know, when you set something up like that at the beginning of the movie, it seems like you're laying the foundation for what's to come. So it's setting you up for a really different take. You know, it's a movie about people who are traumatized by grief. But then when the action starts, they just revert back to their normal Marvel Cinematic Universe quip machine thing, and it goes to the realm of easy humor. And all of the feeling of this is a gritty take just goes away. Yeah. And not, that's how you realize that none of the characterizations and none of the emotions depicted in movie for Thanos or for the main heroes are consistent. It's just whatever makes like for cool moments. There's no there's no integrity, like real emotion behind the storytelling. Which, which is why like the first third of the movie for me was like, Actually, I can be on board with this. I was like, "Hang on, is Marvel gonna like actually pull off the biggest coup?" Is like, you know, with the promise of a CGI battle, you come in and instead you get to see a gritty take on like people yeah. trying to move on. But you don't. But I, you don't. Okay. Well, I like the second, th- the third of the movie, much more than the first bit. The reason is that, as alluded to last week, part for stretches, it felt like a classic heist film. I liked popping back to some of the favorite aspects, not all the favorite aspects, certainly um, being one step removed from the final sequence in the first Avengers film and watching the end of the treads of that, the dregs of that play out was quite entertaining. When they had the first level of this, that worked really well. When in the second level, we're going to go into Inception, 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 it got really bad. And I'm specifically referring to the scene where they go back to the 1970s to meet and meet Iron Man's father. That was fine in and of itself, but the heist was just, oh, the stone's here. We're going to go get it. They but, became lazy. No, that but, became really, really annoying. And they should. And with the screenwriters, what they could have got paid for, they, they probably could have, they could have done a lot better. But the 70s bit was also really bad because of exactly what I was just talking about before, just emotionally inconsistent characterization in order to create you know, the most broadly appealing, flattened, you know, commercial narrative. So Iron Man's dad, Howard Stark, is meant to be a, I think, a pretty tough dad, as this has always been alluded to throughout the the series. But instead of staying true to that characterization, because Iron Man's going to die, they have to give him a, a soppy, sentimental moment where Howard breaks from that kind of characterization to give, like, tons and tons and tons of his time of day. He's not like, I'm an asshole, hurried businessman who'll have no time for my ch- kid. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to talk to this weird, bearded hippie type that's turned up in my military base and uh, sure dispense, okay. yeah, dispense life advice from him and, and really get interested in his emotional interiority and it's like what but you know like they betray all of the characters you know in the way that they were initially set up in this movie at one point or another like Thor except Jarvis they made Thor (laughs) into the junkie they made Thor into the guy who who falls apart even though funny until they overplayed it it, Lebowski Thor was good in the Shaq scene until it got to the Avengers headquarters I agree it was funny at first but it should not have been Thor who had that kind of fall because Thor's characterization is he loses everything in the first movie, but he perseveres and he's a survivor. He should have actually 
Chanel made that point, and I thought she's exactly right. He should have actually been a, um, you know, one of the people who had hardened himself to it and, and moved on the most, based on what we know about his journey. The one who would have fallen apart would be Tony Stark. But th- but man, this movie is so in love with Tony Stark. Every other character gets sacrificed in order to make him look better. Like Iron Man, instead of being able to be the genius of time travel, it has to be Tony Stark who figures it out. Well, no, it's Ant-Man, I mean. They, they, they display Tony Stark as a broken man. And yes, he's got a family life, but he has forsaken everything he worked for his whole life because of what happened. It's a different crisis of faith than Thor went through. And if they'd done the same thing for both, it would have been, oh, okay, but we what want if, all the same hero no. for all the male figures, but no, they didn't. But what if he was... What if Tony Stark was really the broken man and Thor was basically okay? You know, the movie would never cast Robert Downey Jr. in a negative light to that extent. Because it Everything's wasn't... calculated to make him look more broadly appealing in because... the like the shallowest version of a tragic narrative. Because it wasn't just the... Um... A relationship with his father that was significant but it was a relationship with Thor's mother the Rene Russo character was really significant in his life and died as people might have gone because it was a terrible movie in Thor the Dark World but we got to revisit this it was significant for Thor he got to revisit Asgard but that's just the way that this movie it, it comes from a universe where anything that's really sad that our character has to live with don't worry you're going to get a chance to do it again like you're going to get a chance to talk to your mother again and you're going to get a chance to go back in time with Peggy again and you're going to have get a chance to make things right with your dad again and people who've died in the previous movies can come back. It was too neat. Unless their contracts, you know, um, have been renewed. Talking about contracts. Have not uh, been renewed, then then they can actually finally die. Talking about contracts, I'm I'm not sure whether Natalie Portman agreed to be in this movie or whether they just used stock footage because, you know, after what happened with uh, with Patty Jenkins, I'm not quite sure. So did did Raccoon go after her? I don't know what he did to her. I know. Yeah, that was not cool. That was not cool, especially like, that was, Natalie Portman like, dies. that was such a ha ha. Take also, that, um, you know, take that, Natalie Portman. Once again, like Marvel Bros. Like, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm looping back to what I was trying to say in the conversation. Fuck this movie for trying to pretend to be on the side of female empowerment when it does things like that. That's my issue with that. Yeah, with doing this, sh- all right. It hasn't yeah, been, I've, I've seen a and surprising lack of you know what, about that. You know what we've all been talking about? Iron Man's emotional journey and Thor's emotional journey, and and like you know being at you know becoming falling apart and being an addict, you know, and playing video games and and like furrowing your brow and having like an expensive car, like all of that is man pain. I know. This is about man pain. But this is about Captain. It ends on Captain America's man pain being resolved, which is this movie's vision of Titanic heaven, right? But to just, then pretend, you know, hey, look, we've Peggy, got Peggy Carter too. Let's be fair. We've got I mean, just, yeah, actually, I know, but on, on it's point, important to us because one of our guys, the Avengers, is <laughs> feeling that emotion, not because yeah. she Con- know, conversely, was so important to conversely, her. Conversely, conversely, let's see what Pepper Potts' character is going through at this point. Her main arc is, you know, telling Tony, you know okay, you can now rest in peace. You can finally rest. And I'm just like, you know, you would be pretty pissed off at your husband if he already has built out a life with you, has a daughter, and then still can't, like, you know. Evangeline Lilly returns to the movie to be a a character who smiles at (laughs) Ant-Man. That's it. And Michelle Pfeiffer. That's all they could think of. Michelle Pfeiffer, um, Samuel L. Jackson, all these actors who were so short-changed and didn't have a line. Yeah, yeah. Walter. I mean, at the least least they could do is, like, have Thor and uh, Jane have a confrontation scene. Exactly. But you know, a great bitter asshole critic who I recommend to everyone, Walter Chaw from Film Freak Central, <laughs> had the funniest takedown of that scene of that shot. He described it as the Powerpuff pose, right? The the all the women thing. 
He said it was. Yeah, I know the, what you mean. Oh. Yeah. Sugar, spice, right, and everything exactly. nice. And he said all that it left me Chemical wondering X. was what exactly the girl with the empathy was supposed to do in this massive Battle of Helm's Deep. And I thought, with that, those words in my mind, when I watched this movie a second time, um, I thought it's actually hilarious. You see all the characters doing a battle pose, and then Mantis, who, yeah, she just does have empathy powers, kind of awkwardly does a, ha, huh, I'm about to punch you pose, and then puts her hands down. Like, there's no internal consistency of, even ca- of any kind of characterization in the Marvel Universe. It's completely plastic and flat. So the way that people have emotionally invested themselves in it is weird. People build in the emotional resonance into this movie that they can't really. But but talking talking you know, about make like it's like talking about Mantis uh, actually at that point. Does this make sense? Yeah. Before before Mantis comes back, imagine remember the joke that's made the weird chick with the antennas. And I'm yeah. just like you know why that's unnecessarily mean for for a character that's yeah, an empath. Right. Like she's done nothing to deserve that kind of character. It's just no, a cheap that, laugh. It, it, but that was from Drax, who's always quite. But even still, no, no, but he, but he, just but on the side of the screenwriting. No, that, that, that was that was the point of Drax's journey. That he becomes more attuned with his emotions because of, of Mantis. That he learns to actually understand human emotion. Nothing yeah, is there real in the interaction. There are a lot of cheap shots, and I agree. That and the he, would, he would not. He's momentary she, for the reason of delivering on a film. To, and Thor changes, I think, for the better. But he still changes between you know, films as the script and screenplay and plot. Look, I want to make a weird analogy. The way that I was saying that I feel like they trashed Thor's character in so that Tony Stark can look more angelic, um, I think they they trashed they trashed pretty much everyone um, to, who uh, could have had more involvement in this story in order to make Tony Stark look better. And the, one of the worst examples of that was Ant Man, right? Ant Man in the comics, Hank Pym is you know one of, is the greatest genius in the Marvel universe, and Scott Lang is meant to be. Almost as smart because he's been trained by Hank Pym. Is but that it, Doctor Doom? No, that's Hank Pym is Michael Douglas, the initial. No, but I'm saying isn't Doctor Doom the biggest genius in the? Yeah, you're right. Doctor Genius is, but of, among the Avengers. Okay, right. Like sure. Ant Man, for example, one of the his great glorious achievements that was stolen by Robert Downey Jr. in this series created um, Ultron. Ant-Man created Antron. Antron would definitely be the one to figure out time travel. But instead, Ant-Man delivers the news so that Tony Stark, all he has to do is pull his finger out for a moment and he figures it out. And then they tr- they keep trashing Ant-Man throughout the entire movie. He's constantly the butt of jokes. Like, this movie has a really mean-spiritedness to the humor and the cheap shots it takes at people. Uh, we talked about the cheese joke last week. It's, yeah. Un- it is unnecessary. Yeah, but to do that to Ant-Man, who is the guy for which... All of, none of this could have been possible without, but they give all the glory to Tony Stark just feels really weird. And the way that they wrote it, that Tony Stark is the one who figured it all out, made me think about how corporate conservative these movies are. Because seeing Tony Stark being given all the achievements reminded of the people who think that it must have been Francis Bacon who wrote Shakespeare's plays. It, a poor person, like the, petty, the person who started out as a thief, Scott Lang, could never do something as brilliant as the wealthy industrialist uh, But it wasn't Tony just Tony Stark. Stark, it was also Bruce Banner, and he had a lot to do with what, with the developments. And actually, but I'm but, curious but about all the emotion, been... All the main things of this movie are about Iron Man, though. All the most important turning points belong to him. But the, the other arc we haven't discussed is Bruce Banner's. It's been criticized a lot for this fusion of Hulk and Banner. That's one of the elements of the film, one of the main six Avengers arcs I actually really liked. We've shown him struggling, being pure Hulk up, not being able to turn into Hulk, going through these reformations, and suddenly he is um, seems to be in himself comfortable. In terms of taking away I, stuff I from it. Ant-Man... 
yeah, he has always been tormented. Like, he's always been he's always been a joke by virtue of being like what was his line in the first Ant-Man film? Ant-Man. I know. I didn't pick I didn't pick the name. Yeah, but like the banner arc. But it's just so confusing because like being a I joke didn't... to the extent of like this he's funny to like the way that everyone picks on him in this movie despite him doing something amazing. Yeah, but like also the Hulk and uh, Bruce Banner arc. It was confusing to me. I'm like how did you manage like you know the balance like you know how, how did you arrive at that? They explained it in the in the diner. Okay, here's how <laughs> in the diner. Something that illustrates how lazy this movie is is that the concept of was Ant Man got lost in the subatomic realm at the end of Ant Man and the Wasp, and that's going to be the lead into you know a time travel thing, and that makes you think, wow, you know, because of the way the subatomic realm has been depicted in this really psychedelic, interesting way, as like this you know other universe, like time is different here, kind of thing, right? So that makes you think. Or at least it made left me to expect um, that time travel in this would be some kind of really cool trippy thing where you know we bend the rules of the subatomic realm in order to sort things out. Yeah, like, they didn't vote a movie. Like, the way they did it and in this did movie nothing is with that. he comes out of the subatomic realm. I don't and know they why say, that was there. And they and they say, great, we'll use use that to do a standard time machine. Like they they invented something incredible that would have really and you know broadened out the the scope of the like Marvel universe as a strange, you know, time and space thing. You know what, it was, but instead, it, they were like, nope, Back to the Future. It's not like Back to the Future, but actually it is. It was just the time machine. Yeah. It was the actual time machine from the time machine in terms of its design. There yeah. was no, actually, there was no creativity in terms of the machine. There was no creativity in how time was handled. The one good thing about the terrible so Alice in Wonderland sequel was the really trippy moments Tim Burton had going through time and space. Right, well, this the Ant-Man, Ant-Man, the original, and Ant-Man and the Wasp kind of went in that direction too. And now they had the opportunity to to follow up on that, and they were just they couldn't imagine, you know, incorporating oh. the, some of the Ant Man centric elements. I guess Be- maybe because this movie's all about filleting Tony Stark. No, there's there's no <laughs> moment in this where Thanos no other can get and that kind of glory. Um, Doctor Strange fight with reality in time. There's nothing. No, like that. yeah, that would have been actually. Yeah, what is Doctor Strange when... doing in this film apart from like that one thing where well, he's just, he like, was brought back? Yeah, just to tell Tony Stark now is the time to die. You know, oh, and to bring everyone back. Yeah, but like, you know, but like, honestly, he's actually one of the more interesting and stronger Marvel superheroes who can play around with a lot of things. The whole arc where Bruce Banner goes to Tilda Swinton's character and has to convince her, that could have been a much more interesting discussion, but that ended up being, yeah, oh, Strange gave the time stone up, so there has to be a reason, so I'm going to give it yeah. to you, which was such a lazy resolution to that. Instead of it being like a philosophical discussion. But like, why should I give it to you? Because, you know, my timeline is equally important. Why the should thing I, about you know, timelines being interesting equally concept. important, yeah. the thing is the movie doesn't follow up on that because the idea of, well, surely... We're just going to keep the stones back to where they belong. It's yeah. like nothing happened. Well, surely like, you're really. going to return the stone to this universe if Strange said so. But wouldn't that just create another split in the universes? Like one where he did and one where he he didn't? Why does it, you yeah. know, what's the point where you start caring it, about the lives of exactly. the people in the just, other universes? Because infinite you're, you're creating. But there's infinite I'm, I'm of them. It, yeah. But there are infinite, if there's infinite of them out there and infinite of them possible, then does sacrificing one even mean anything? The only thing that matters is that our heroes get through to the end of the day, right? Which would have been a great philosophical, which, which Branagh touched on the philosophical discussion with Tilda Swinton's character, and it would have been a great one. But to they're have. afraid to go, though. No, I think. They, they have to be, you know, like our pristine heroes. Yeah, even if be it like, the universe be is gonna more make dumb. Sense. Be more dumb. Yeah, yeah. Be more um, dumb. The, Hulk smash thing. Yeah. I want to be dumb. 
Yeah. Uh, the the last thing Hulk smash thing indeed. <laughs> Hulk smash. The last thing I want to say about this film is that, and it's the same criticism I have of the next Game of Thrones episode or the current Game of Thrones episode, is that it mistakes scale for grandeur and epic. It thinks because we have a palette that is huge and we throw enough money at this and enough CGI and enough characters and enough actors and enough build up and enough hype and enough marketing, we can create the biggest thing ever. This yep. film, I, I, it's and really it's so interesting dumb. I felt like see... Shades of, of Pearl Harbor of the US military like salute credit that plays music that yeah. plays over the end credits. It, it's really interesting to see. Um, <laughs> Still had more characterization of Liv Tyler. That have been out there for this film and how divergent they are. If you read them, they're more divergent than the last Jedi reviews. Some are four or five stars, some are one or two star. I think a lot of the four or five star reviews, and many are from reviewers I respect and love and read all the time, and I agree with a lot of the points they raise, but they, the, what they are praising is not so much that the film delivered on something epic, but was simply huge in scale. Yes, this is an event in and of itself, and then it's entertaining, that's why we're excited for it, but you can't sell an event simply because it exists. It's an event. It's You're the right. fire festival thing. No, you cannot They're just create saying, the biggest festival ever. Congratulations, not that I'm Marvel. To the you just festival. made the biggest Marvel movie ever. But like, what does that mean, and why is that worthy of praise? I think yeah. you've hit the nail on the head. We should be able to enjoy it in and of itself as a film. And you know what? I don't know how many people are going to... We were talking about... We've seen every one of these films. Mo, not, there's not a lot of people who are going to see this as the first um, Avengers or Marvel film. If they do, they'll be bored. They'll think it's yeah. a, have a terrible experience. And you know what? I, I and yes, it's bored. a 22nd film, but it should deliver as a standalone picture. It Avengers Infinity have, War did, but it doesn't this even, doesn't. Well, the reason it doesn't wouldn't deliver as a standalone picture is because it doesn't have emotional consistency throughout. You know, if you're seeing this and you, you could pick up on the wavelength of these characters and then maybe enjoy it on a dramatic level. But they're switching all the time and nothing has any weight in this universe. So why would you care unless you've, you know, you've created the weight artificially in your own mind by having watched 21 of these bloody things in advance. So it seems like it must be significant because I've spent this much of my life on it. No, and we can't just allow... it's always on TV. Hopefully The Rise of Skywalker doesn't rest on its morals too. Yeah. No, we we hope that they... I mean, clearly, no, the Russos did put everything should just go up in flames. Look, this—the way that this series is, you know, presenting itself as epic and dignified, and then undermining itself with cheap humor—is like this is like watching not the Lord of the Rings, but like a Super Bowl commercial for a telephone company parodying the Lord of the Rings. Or this is like if the Lord of the Rings trilogy was already the MTV parody of it, like it had absorbed the Jack Black version. Um, from the MTV Music Awards into itself. And that, you know, and whenever you're just seeing shades of Jack Black, whenever Ant-Man gets debased to make some other character look good or Nebula knees Quill in the balls, like the, we, it's as trashy as the, as the body humor parodies, but it pr- also pretends to have some kind of dignity. You, it's so fake and calculated. You know what's some great wry funny moments in but Return you know of the what? King? The moment where Sam was climbing up the mountain. No, Fred, I'll take you myself. Or where everyone kneels and the four hobbits are sitting there. Oh dear, everyone's kneeling. It's just the four of us. What's going on? Oh no. Those are funny. They were inherently funny. They weren't forced. The and, humor in and they were dramatic so as well. forced and so cruel. And it's not simply that it's calculated. It's that it's itemized. It's like KPIs. You have to hit a joke yes. every Jokes couple of second. scenes. Everything's oh, yeah. so calculated. Even like the approach to the twists is super calculated. Like Iron Man can die. And we can even go as far as a twist of Iron Man doesn't die, you know, with like beautiful hero's last words, but, you know, just silently. But then they replace that with, you know, with a 
he gets to have a final speech, which is also a pat on the back for the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where he's clearly alluding to how much money they're making. You know, like, who would have known 10 years ago? If I had known, it would have been so, so cosmically significant. Like, shut the fuck up. No, <laughs> so, um, the whole movie is like corporate pat on the back to itself. Like, nothing really... It doesn't teach you how to be a better citizen, right? Like, what is the social value of Marvel movies? They like they capitalism no, wins. Yeah, no one ever. It's a social value. No, even the heroes are heroes because they they fight the bad guys. The heroes are heroes because they they punch the right people, right? They never. No, the heroes are heroes of, because they don't. They're emotionally stunted. They can't yeah. move on, well, and they're stuck up on the past. Yes, but Captain America, which is uh, exactly is, what why you need. Real therapy, to Cap- be honest. Captain America is the only person... in therapy at the beginning of the movie. Cap- I know. Look, Captain America is the only one of these people who's ever shown trying to help people in ways that don't involve punching bad ones the best, right? The movie has never put a focus on, like, the heroic ideal. Like, go back to something like Superman. It really is building uh, up the idea okay. of Superman no, as something you no, really believe in. Absolutely not. Captain America is the Bruce only Banner, one that bothered to do that. at the beginning of the first Avengers film, helping people. Um, it was quite a remote area. So his okay. expectation is very All right, but that was nearly, that was, you know, seven years ago. Like, it's a long time between drinks for something that should, I think, be central to the conception of what a superhero is. And therefore, caught this, you know, biggest and, in the culture uh, uh, representation okay, no, of superheroes no, we have. Civil War, um, Tony Stark going out to Sokovia Accord and saying, no, we need these. I yeah, I just these. found the Civil War plotline so stupid that I could never take it seriously as political commentary. Sorry, but uh, I was just reminded of how much I hated that movie when they started rehashing the argument from it at the beginning with Stark and and Captain. Actually, this is a good Um, opportunity. What is... Does everyone have a favorite of the 22 now? A favorite Marvel film, one that stands out? I think mine might still be Civil War, just because the villain wasn't a massive explosive CGI monster and actually had an interesting plot. My favorite is Infinity War because it feels urgent. But I need to figure out, you know, say one last... (laughs) One last Marvel thing. One last... Infinity War thing. When I was saying before that it has no moral value, I just realized how how empty this was in the moment when uh, Iron Man, at the end of the movie, when he gets the Infinity Gauntlet, he snaps his fingers and it seems that his wish was I hope all the people who are my enemies die and that Thanos dies last so that he can witness it all and realize he's lost because that's exactly what plays out on screen as chance would have it but I just felt so let down that after we set up Thanos as being the villain because he wants half of all people on earth to die the response from Tony Stark is yeah well I want all of your people to die like is that in any way better but it is in this universe because those guys are just the bad guy. And I, I, I find it really off-putting to see enemies depicted in that way in a war movie in 2019. Like, on the metaphorical level, it's the kind of storytelling that sets us up to view foreign you know, invaders or opponents as just other and worthy of complete decimation. And so then we don't allow that down... Um, at least in yeah. Australia. I just wonder, and but like, it, what kind of storytelling is this? In, if you know, children are absor- uh, like really absorbing the morality of it. Oh, he could just as well have been like, all right, ropes tying their hands and feet, go. And yeah. uh, or he could have been yeah. like, how about let's create more energy, you know, in the universe, more renewable, more powerful renewable energy, and balance everything out so that Thanos can be shown the error of his own ways without having just to be That's killed. That's a whole different movie. I know, but the point is. And Disney would never get that political, but the only way that you can accept that 
Iron Man isn't ideologically as bad as Thanos is if you think Thanos's people are all just the bad guy, which they essentially are. And the more you think about it, the more you realize that this universe is just dumb. And what Thanos did isn't bad because killing in any case is bad, but just because the, some a lot of the good guys died as well. I mean, you're talking about you know the first Iron Man movie where when Tony Stark is caught up in you know the Middle East. The people aren't even speaking the correct language. They're speaking Hindi and Urdu, and that's from like a totally different geographical region. And I'm just like, but that's this whole that's thing started Arabic with America, and it they ends... don't speak Arabic in Afghanistan Look, either. For let's us. not forget know, that Iron was Man like... was a fantasy for America to feel like it could uh, be making a positive difference in the Middle East. You know, from ten years ago, designed to you know, and support your belief circle, in the American Captain Marvel, which is all about complex. the patriotism and, and now, like, yeah, a and positive exactly. American military complex. Yeah, yeah, and now ten years later, they they put out Captain Marvel and then close this with music that sounds like it, an episode of Jag. Yeah, which is so like that. Jag Honestly, well, Jag, the, Jag is great. Well, the, as I was saying earlier, the um, the you know the the um like cereal box or action figure key art in the background version of the characters come up on screen while their signatures are re- arrive. And I just thought it was funny that at the end of such an impersonal corporate movie, we suddenly get a touch suggesting that maybe this is a personal statement from, of all people, the actors? Like, having putting the actors' signatures... Off. They were signing off. I get that they were off. signing off, but it still kind of feels like, yep, this is it's all about us. And, you know, they're never going to have the director's... Um, put up there because directors are expendable in the Marvel universe, well, and they're never no. going to have the producers put up there because that would be admitting how much about money it is. One of the, so one of the Russo the brothers was there. The one of the Russo brothers was there in the in the Alcoholics Anonymous scene, right? He was right, but he didn't get his put his signature at the end of the movie. I know, but he was still there, and as a tokenist, he'd be like, "Oh my god, director!" And I'm like, okay, and the, cool. the, a lot of the people who are signing off will return in the next wave of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. James Bond will return. Oh, sorry. Oh, James Bond will return. <laughs> Thanos actually, will return was actually the best thing. <laughs> Thanos will return was one of the best things in the first Avengers. But yeah, this movie feels, in the way that I was talking about it being just flattened out in terms of nothing having been carried through on, nothing having real significance, like not going through on what five years means, not going through on what characters dying means. You know, I just felt so sorry for Bradley Cooper in the scene where the raccoon man has to say, all right, you know, we've got to save this person because they're really gone as opposed to this person who's not really gone <laughs> or whatever. And it's just like, oh, God, you yeah. have to, you know, like Bradley Cooper, who should have won Best Actor this year, was reduced to justifying the weird, dumb morality and rules of this Plato, you know, Lego world of yeah. action figures and toys. Yeah. So that, that was Endgame. Yeah, that it was world like of fake Buffy combined with fake Lord of the Rings with fake Warhammer elements and like jokes from a fake version of The Simpsons all like flattened to something that would sell more cereal boxes. Yeah, so um, that uh, probably cartoon I uh, can't forget okay. just passed one billion dollars in five we've days just finished, breaking a world record. R- right now that we finished talking about the movie, can I just can we just briefly say why you know how you said critics are praising it for being what it sets out to be? Yeah. Why are no critics standing up against this? I think because, I think plenty are, but not. But actually, okay, actually, no, I'll, I'll qualify that. Critics aren't talking to that point. They're talking more to the bloated nature of the film and the tried what they see as tried time yeah, travel dynamics. I think that critic. I think that people should be more 
Neoliberalism has won, Chris. Because when I watched this movie the first time, I tried to open my heart up to it in this positive fan environment. And I was like, yeah, it's enjoyable enough. And I still saw that slickness when I watched it the second time. But then in an environment where I wasn't just being charitable, you see how weak it is as a narrative. But people are just... I know that I'm sa- that not everyone has to share my opinion, and what I am voicing right now is just my subjective response to it. But it just seems like something that's as powerful as this, yet is so politically, I think, strange, um, should have more resistance to it. Otherwise, what are critics for? I know critics can say what they think is good is good, but critics, I think, are differentiated from the general public in having different taste. You know, it's weird how we're all rallying behind the biggest thing in the world right now and telling people it's good when there's there's so much wrong with the Marvel Cinematic Universe's films. It reminds me of the last Harry Potter film. It reached the culmination of eight films after ten yeah, years. Yeah, but does you that actually the Battle of Hogwarts? Yeah, but does that and actually mean anything? You know, like it means something within this universe. Like, wow, it's such a big thing that we've reached the point in the story with the Battle of Hogwarts. But is that really more important than just being a film well made enough that it makes you cry? You know, as opposed to like an empty corporate spectacle. I'm with you. And that's why I say it should have existed as a film in and of itself. Yeah. That is Avengers Endgame. It is in cinemas now. It will be for a very, very long time to come. Help it get past that Forever two billion mark. Never. Um, so, I mean, um, just, critics, just. I like that we're critics standing against something. Like, just say, yeah. like. No, we, I'm not we, saying we, that we're all just trying to. I'm not saying it, don't see it. But I mean, yeah. like. We actually I actually mean, do think you should I think see critics it. should Every, stand for it. Gonna, like, everyone's going to see it. Like, I mean, Luke they're Buckmaster, not going to listen to us. Luke Buckmaster wrote a great article which sums up. Um, I recommend you look it up on the Daily, where he's not a, the Daily Review, where he's not afraid to sound like the pretentious old guy, old man yells at Cloud in his attempt to take down um, Endgame, and he raises the point I was trying to make before, like why do why are less people standing up against this? Um, I think yeah, like if you're a critic, because people like, have you, given up. You should up. say this is like have the cynicism of where is this coming from? This is a product. What is this opening up the door for more movies to be like, you know, as opposed to just saying like, good on Marvel, you did the biggest thing ever, you know, yay more superhero blockbusters. Like, uh, we, is, the, is this really the kind of cinema we want to be champions for at the end of the day? No, we don't, but nobody no. cares. Nobody listens yeah. to no, us. No, the is, no, no, I'll qualify that. I want cinema on an epic grand return Me of the too. King Star Scale. But this is, again... I do again, love that stuff when it's pulled it's, off well. Gr- it's not grandeur. It's not epic. It's just scale. It's, it's just and it's cheap scale. scale. It's, it's like it's Silvio Berlusconi level like yeah, hotel room. I'd, I'd rather watch... It's like a Donald Trump gold hotel room. I'd rather watch like Mission <laughs> Impossible Fallout. Than Me too. Endgame, which oh, is much yeah. better That's a much so film, much yeah. more inventive. Once again, epic, epic scale, grandeur. It's doing all of that, but with emotional heft. Yeah, so that Donald Trump gold bar. Oh, Mad Max Fury Road. Is in, oh, That's the gold standard of this kind of thing. Is it fair to compare years. anything to Mad Max Fury Road? Sorry, is it fair to compare anything to Mad right. Max Fury Road? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So, hi Charlie Theron, I love you. Yeah. Sorry, that was just an aside. Long shot is coming out. It's a long shot is coming out. It, it there are other movies. There are other well, movies. It, it is a long shot that she would have heard this, but anyway. So that was <laughs> Avengers Endgame. I also didn't misspeak earlier. Of course, there are people who speak in Arabic-speaking communities in Afghanistan, though it is not the primary language, and nor it is the primary language in Westeros. The only, where, what are the languages? It's um, what's the, it's not the, it's the Faraki, there's the common tongue. Um, there is a, what's the uh, High Valerian? Yeah, yeah. We... Oh, man. I was just thinking elvish. <laughs> there are no elves in Game of Thrones, dude. What about what about um from the in the first season 
Daenerys' brother. That dude was surely an elf. Oh, uh, Daenerys is an elf. Rhaegar. Ra- 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 the Rhaegar. Yeah, th- those no, no, two so are Rhaegar was his... Ra- 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 sorry. Rhaegar is her... be called elves. Rhaegar is her brother. You're referring to Viserys. Yes. Right. Fun fact, that actor is the great-great-grandson of Charles Dickens. Oh, really? And was also in a Family of Blood episode in Doctor Who, in Mother of Mine. Right. Season, again, season three. Hmm. So, Game of Thrones. Uh, we have just <laughs> caught this fourth last episode, The Battle of Winterfell. It is the third episode of season eight. They've been building this for eight years, nine yeah. years. And it is one of the most, the second most anticipated, not the most anticipated major battle event of the week. It is event television defined. You will likely have seen it by now, possibly. This is a spoiler discussion. They spent not just eight years, but Two last two episodes of people literally sitting around a fire talking to each other, no real action happening, just building, building, building to this. I, my, I put my review up as soon as I uh, watched it. I there were redeeming aspects to it. There are aspects I very much enjoyed. There were some very terrible aspects to it. But before we get into those, um, I'm I want to hear Virat's take because uh, I think it's a little bit stronger on one side of things than and mine. Before you reply to Virat's take, I have a special message to Virat after he's given his take. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> sorry, I'm just blushing. Uh, <laughs> sorry, mean face, mean face, mean face. Uh, yeah, cool. Uh, back in my game. Uh, I wish I could enjoy the episode more if I could see it better. I think that's my overall feeling. Because I saw it on my laptop and it was really, really, really dark. It was really shot really badly. I mean... Why was it the, so dark? The scale... Is this like uh, Christopher the, Nolan making movies that no one can hear? No, it's, a, it's, it's part of the narrative because the Night King literally brings darkness No, he brings him, darkness, So it yeah. had to be as dark as possible. And that's the winter but, that's been coming for the last eight years. But fun fact, I hooked this up on my laptop to my TV. And because it's an old TV and slightly overexposed, I looked at the screen on the laptop, looked at the screen in the image. Normally, I would want to go off the screen on the laptop. But no, I could actually see what was going on right. using my overexposed old television. What a bad way television. to just pick to darkness. Let's make it so dark no one can see it, as opposed to more imaginative dark, ways of, of visualizing it. Heart of darkness. Okay. No, okay, so that aside, so visually I wasn't able to take in as much as I would have loved to, because I do agree in terms of the actual scaling of it, it's fantastic. And, you know, there are a lot of moments that are set up, and in terms of the actual tension build up, you know, yes, it's taken away from you, and it's kind of an anticlimax, which we'll get to, but... Until then, until the actual stakes in terms of what stakes are, there's still a lot happening. It's just that you're not able to see it. I mean, I was just frustrated because I was squinting and staring hard. I'm like, I can't make out like who is who. It's just literally so hard to watch. And literally not hard to watch because it's like painful or like, you know, emotionally unsatisfying. It's just hard to watch because you can't make out things. <laughs> I can't screen. see anything. <laughs> um, what what happened? Did you, Who's yeah. there? Is that Brienne? <laughs> what? That's, that's exactly like... Because the characters are kind of like that. They're in that foggy element and they can't see each other. Well, have you considered that maybe is... this was a directorial choice to try and make you think about what it would be like to see the world if you were always wearing sunglasses? <laughs> is that a Jack Nicholson joke? My future is too bright, so I'll wear it's sunglasses? Is that... Look, you want to see a world Game of Thrones them. battle? Go watch The Battle of the Bastards or Hard Home. Both took place during the day. Even the Battle of the Blackwater took place at night, but incredibly well lit up. That's and true. the Castle Black Assault... Also, much more memorable, but for many more reasons, it was more memorable, and we will, we will get into those. I mean, uh, so, talking about that, because this 
episode also does that thing about bringing back the dead. So there are a lot of parallels with Endgame. Oh my god, in, in it's so like, interesting to compare these two that have come out in the same week. Again, mistaking uh, epic grandeur well, for scale. You know, I'm um, so out of the loop. I, I haven't seen many years worth of Game of Thrones, and I'm still catching. So the Night now. King is, you know, if oh, you I kill someone, they come is, back to yeah. the, from the dead. So technically, oh, yeah, they're not dead, but they're I the know, undead. Yeah. But they're dead. So like, you know, who's dead? Who's really dead? Well, so like, you're who, comparing it to Endgame in terms of the, how they approach death? Exactly. Like, who is really dead? Are they dead if they're the undead, or are right. they dead if they're not dead? Oh they come back no, to life? I think the people in Game of Thrones are very dead. I know, but they're still kind of like coming back to life. They're risen from the dead, and now they're part of the other side. But they're still dead, but they're not really dead. There was one good moment where they played in that dynamic, and that was where the giant that stormed the castle in the Battle of Winterfell was the same giant that stormed the castle at the Battle of the Bastards, only he was alive at the Battle of the Bastards and on the side of um, John, and this time he was dead, but on the side of the Night King, which I thought was a pretty eerie touch. I know, but the giant that storms, you know, I'm like, okay, we could have done that with a major character, which is my whole point and problem in the entire episode. We were promised a lot of carnage, we didn't really get enough of it. I mean, the the actual stakes and what was promised and what was delivered. Because well, I'm was, still watching early Game of Thrones stuff at the moment, right? They're setting up the Night King as such a such a horrific thing. It's been seasons and seasons and seasons of build up, and then that's all. Look, Game of Thrones. Okay, we'll get into what happened to the Night King in a little bit. In terms of the stakes and how characters and who can die. The penultimate episode from the last season where um, Thoris of Mir died when fighting, when surrounded by the Whites and a bunch of red shirts. No main characters died. This has a serious problem where we have such tableau of characters and while a number of significant characters were killed, including one we met in the very first, ep- two we met in the very first episode in this episode, there were no, none of them were a-list tier characters whose arcs, except, uh, except, no except for Theon, except for Theon I, and Jorah for a bit in the latest season. I was shocked when I started watching Game of Thrones again to see that because I had heard that Game of Thrones was the show that kills it people off and you never know who's going to die. In, but I was in, like, hang on, first, all of these characters seasons, yes. are still alive in the current in the current season. It's only minor characters who get introduced along the way who they try to convince you will become more important and get killed the, off. Yeah. But essentially, the, the main cast that you're designed to care about from the beginning... It never has the courage to kill off. Except Ned Stark and Sean Bean. I Except think Ned Stark, that, but that was, that, that, that was the that initial was, that was, that was, And that was the Red Wedding and yeah, Joffrey. That's true. But Joffrey of, was also, but he was evil, so like yeah. people, people were expecting him to die. Then he, Oberon. He, uh, yeah. But anyway, the, the point I'm trying to get to, uh, one of the other characters we're talking about, Lyanna Stark and Main her cast death. is invulnerable. Uh, Lyanna Stark and her death and what they do with her character and the very gruesome way she's killed off, uh, which like, kind of stood out for me in terms of like completely ripped apart in that sense and it's just like uh, was that necessary was that really gratuitous I'm not sure <laughs> alright um, I did appreciate um, the man in her last action before yeah. she went out that was quite a powerful quite a great moment I know but like um, what happens to her after and I was just like I was. it was just actually uncomfortable to watch not just that I mean once again, we coming back to how do we treat female characters and like what actual role are they playing? Not only in the Game of Thrones universe, also in the Endgame universe. They're like, it's just like you know, are they just there to kind of be like, oh, of course, you know, this is a medieval fantasy world. Women will be treated like that, and they would deserve such an end. Is that a thing, or I don't know, I don't know. I'm All actually right. confused. To that end, 
I do think there is a problem with how women have been portrayed in many episodes of Game of Thrones over multiple seasons. I think it was significant that there were a number of male and female characters on the ramparts and having leadership roles in this battle. Certainly we'll get to the role Arya played in this battle later, but it had the my favourite moment from the series thus far, from the season thus far, was when Brienne became the first female knight of the Sand Kingdoms. I think that was a very novel and a very powerful moment that Wait, I wasn't expecting at all. she died in the next episode? No, she didn't. Okay. And, this, and this is the point I'm getting to. And look, it's not simply that we are expecting main characters to die. It's more than that. By the end of this battle, most, and by this I mean we're giving the impression, and there's no spatial awareness, but that aside, we're giving the impression that by the vast majority of people who are left alive at Winterfell in the north are dead. Mm. There are a handful of people dead. So there are a handful of people still alive. But there's one. There's, the people the still cast. alive are the main cast. Now, you can forgive this to an extent by saying that, yes, the main cast are all high-born, have great armor, and are well-trained. But when there are hundreds of people yeah, lying there, and the last three people there are Jamie, Brienne, and Podrick, and then the Hound's fine, and everyone's fine, and most of the alive characters appear to be face characters. It's the same as it's Marvel. It's incredibly frustrating. It's the same damn thing as Marvel. But worse than that... We don't actually know. And sh- okay, yes, we want to, we're not sure. We'll find out what happened to Tormund and a few others or Jilly. But we don't know simply if a lot of characters are alive or dead. There's no follow through in terms of a lot of these narratives. There's no special awareness in the film, in the story. I could, people will be forgiven. I certainly was not aware by the end of this episode how many dragons were alive or dead. There were two dragons left alive. I'm not sure how many, when the episode started, I'm not sure how many there are still. We should know this. It's a bare, essential, basic fact. And the dragon played a fairly substantive role. Um, the one sequence of the dragon I really want to get into, but I still want to hear more about what Verat hated about the episode before I get into what I liked about the episode. Verat, I, before I hear more about what you hated about it, I just wanted to say that Chanel's been texting me and she's been trying to get me to tell you how incredibly angry she was because of this episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, as in, so, said, as a message you. to would, me. Yeah, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Chanel. <laughs> Did it make you that angry? It, it made me angry in the sense that uh, I felt she cheated. She was yelling about it, the logic of sticking the defenseless in a crypt when the necromancer is on his way. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, okay. And, and that, okay. That <laughs> was... All right. What made this... Once episode... again, cheap cheap humor. It's it's very Marvel-like, no, to think, be honest. I don't think it was humor. Okay. Really? One of the interesting things <laughs> you literally this in a crypt while you're waiting for your death. <laughs> instead of two conventional armies going up against each other, you had a conventional army against the army of the dead, which allows you to do a lot of interesting things. For the most part, frustratingly, the the combat was very traditional, conventional combat, which was good. But we've seen it in the Black Ward and other medieval-based films, whether it be coming up over the ramparts parts or the trenches. Having said that, there were three exceptions to how the dead specifically deployed here, which was fascinating to see. One was literally hundreds of the whites clawing onto the dragons that soared towards the sky. It was an amazing visual image. One was the very dry moment when the whites came up against the trenches of fire and started throwing themselves onto to create a bridge of rotting carcass. Again, that mo- similar to that moment where they started to cross the ice for the first time at the end of last season. Oh, wow, what is going to happen now? And third, because it was a truly horrifying moment, I disagree here, that I did not see coming, the idea of putting them in the crypt, not realizing that the necromancer, or whatever we're calling him, will, yes, raise the dead, and seeing um, Lana Stark and all but these dead corpses coming out of attacking them. That should have been so that obvious, was, though. Uh, not like, to me. Certainly, I don't think... It, you could be forgiven for... The, the, the whole plan was to get the Night King point anything that could happen, and it was the safest place to be. It was a truly terrifying moment when all these dead family ancestors come out and but start to rip your face off. Wouldn't the safest place to be not be a place where the dead that can be raised Face. Are? Where else? Off. 
anywhere else. No, no, but where else? Like where else in the, in the grounds of Winterfell would have been more feasible? Face. There's nowhere. Off. Yeah. Remember, the, remember, just remember, in season two, the castle was destroyed. Most of the grounds and buildings were gone. The crypt was one of the places that remained intact. They made a point of this. So except for the tower, which was raided, where else could the families have all gone? I that, think I think that's true, call. but also it kind of makes you feel like there are certain people who can fight, and they're doing the fighty fighty thing, yeah. and these other people are just kind of defenseless yeah, and useless. Same thing in the Helm's Deep. I was I going know, I to say, I but feel like, like every the, in a kind of like, like that would be like everyone fights. Yeah, but, but also like you know Tyrion and Sansa, like they've done a lot of growing, and not just Tyrion is still seen as like a wisecrack, wise mouth, and you know that he's not really kind of useful in a battle, which kind of makes me feel like. Is there really uh, been character development? Except, in that? except there was a whole discussion about this in the second to last episode where he wanted to fight, and Daenerys said, "No, you're my hand. I order you to stay down there." So they did establish. I that. know, I know, but like, I order you to stay down, like you know, and like Sansa and stuff. But like, oh yeah, and she's supposedly the queen of the North. I mean, like the queen is not going to go fight but, for her people. But as established in the episode, she's never held a weapon before. I know, but like you, ha- but you still like you're the queen. Like you're you're there as a symbolic head. Which why you stand up at the ramparts, which is what she did. Um, I don't disagree with her presence. I, I understand why they, they gave a rationale for her presence in the crypt. Uh, yeah, they they did, but it's. I'm not saying that they didn't give it, but it's such a weak and such a convenient thing of like these people did. And I mean, Jon Snow is not. I mean, can you see how inept and completely he doesn't oh, belong on oh, the battlefield? Oh no, he's the worst strategic commander. I know. Oh my god, every decision. I mean, if, if, if you're talking about somebody who belongs in the crypt, it's Jon Snow. He should not be out there on the battlefield. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's supposed to be like a leader on on a dragon. He's supposed to be running. He's not I a commander. He's I can't a bastard. believe that. Well, he, he knows. Jesus. He knows nothing. He knows nothing about fighting. Definitely. The thing, the thing about um, the Night King being defeated so quickly is that you know I've heard a lot, and I thought it made sense of analysis of you know the night king's army as being a metaphor for global warming you guys had heard that kind of take before right yes that you know it's like this inevitable weather event kind of that you know that will take us out like this force that sneaks up on you while we fight over petty trivial political matters but for them to it actually be something that's defeated so easily it's like oh i guess this is just a corporate product designed to reassure people it's the same way that kind of global warming type arguments are used to make Thanos seem deep in yeah. Avengers Infinity War and then the ultimate solution is, is like what? Yeah, and then it's like what? I, I agree that what he did is wrong but sh- what? You're not going to take this moment to think hmm, maybe that guy had you know, had a, po- a point to be so angry about um, energy use maybe we yeah. should spend put we, some of the Avengers minds towards thinking about that so we don't breed another terrorist like that, you know? But this universe is just like, nope, we Punched the global warming king Thanos and and Night King, you know, uh, which is kind of Marvel setting of setting up the same thing. The main which, cast are yeah. essentially invulnerable unless their contracts run out. Yeah, which which is essentially what now now this is setting up is the big battle is really between Cersei's army and Winterfell. That's fine. They'd be building that for the I, whole I, series. I know, I know, but like, not really. I mean, she's not a villain. She's just there in King's Landing, chilling. I mean, like you know, you don't have to fight her. Like I you don't know. know, she still has some tor- like some torture dungeons where there's a lot of people currently being tortured. She's a I know, but bad like person. so are so many dictators. It's so, it's you it's know, every- it doesn't make it excusable. I it, it doesn't. Why, who gives you the right to go out there in somebody else's kingdom and like liberate? This is exactly the kind of Western morality that needs to be eradicated. All right, I mean- okay. On the matter of, <laughs> yeah, Cersei's a terrible person. Endgame's the same. 
All right. You know, like, who gives you the torchbearer of mor- morality to be exactly. like, I need uh, to go up there in somebody else's kingdom. You know, this is the exactly stupidity of, like, the Hussein and the Iraq wars and, like, in <laughs> weapons of mass destruction. Okay. Oh, totally. Of course. Why not? I mean, it's, it's the parallels. The Endgame same, is right? how they'd like to view the Iraq war. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Two points. I'm not surprised. To the Night King. At least they get Number the Arabic one. right. <laughs> Number one. The... It is disappointing for the Night King's arc that we only actually got to know anything concrete about his motivations in the second to last episode. We should have gotten to know this being established a lot, lot earlier. It was going to be knowledge about climate change that would have been fine. It was to an extent. But that suddenly shoehorned in, oh, this is why he's here. It was way too late in the piece for a major villain then to be developed and whose who's, who's, you know, army have been developed over eight seasons. On the matter of the climate change analogy, I think you're underselling it. Here's the reason. A few seasons ago, they established that the Night King was created by the children of the forest when the quote-unquote first men came across the stepstones into the north. So they didn't come across the stepstones, sorry. They came through Essos. Sorry, actually, I'm not sure if it was through Essos or through the north, north-north. They came in and started wrecking havoc um, which in and of itself is an analogy of climate change. The natural, the indigenous people who were there destroying the natural resources and response to children of the forest created this. 8,000 years later, quote unquote, the realms of men make their last stand as recompense for what was done so many years ago to, to fight off and defeat this menace that was created not by them because of a terrible thing they did. So I think the climate change analogy, while it was the core part of it, is still very apt and very relevant. And while you can be, well, the, the series will take criticism for Arya killing him off seemingly so simply, I think it is still, in that element, grand and sweeping and epic. And one of those epic things they've done in the series thus far, if not the most epic. It is epic, but. If they could have waited a second more, John would have died, and that would have been such satisfying because he's clearly, clearly just such an inept character in just general. Like, I don't use know your what, dragon more, man. I know, but but what is he doing? Daenerys and John just need to die, just in general, because they're both equally annoying, and maybe but that's why the they belong together. Ones. But they're not young. That's how. That's well, it. Firstly. I'm not sure if they're hot, but maybe that's just my sexuality. Yeah, but anyway, but like also, they're not really that young child. anymore. Clearly, what do things mean, they're, have they're, changed. They're, they're like they're the young hot ones. What? But in this universe, you know, of like the, of the main characters, they represent the young, young in our core demographic contingent. Oh, but also, yeah, John, once again, back from the dead. I mean, can he just stay, oh, should have yeah, just stayed it, it's dead? It's too much. You can't just survive that too many times Sam as far as I think has become that character as of this episode. The amount oh, yeah, of times he, he just he, survived. Yeah, in, okay. in this one, also Jamie. Just getting wet again and again and again and again. I mean, they should just have a scene of Jamie and Brienne banging and then just get it over and done with, and then they could just die. Wow. They would just Jamie dying while he's having sex would be kind of cathartic because he's just he was the one who pushed Brienne. Yeah. You know, anyway, actually, it would have been coming but full I, circle. But I, I hear anyway. he just forgives wow. that. Wow. I hear that Brienne just he doesn't forgive goes, it. He yeah, says, whatever. but it brought you it here. Me... It brought everyone here to this point. Yeah, but, like, but, but it's such a huge utilitarian thing. argument for like a completely narcissistic act. Do you buy it? I, I don't buy anything. I'm a communist. But, no, yeah. but I mean, do you buy? Do you buy? <laughs> the argument, no. Yeah. Um, well, no, no. It was no. it was quite cheap. It, it, it was too quick a reunion. But also, like, Bran has nothing to do except sit around. Up. It was too much. Yeah. That's these... not. He's the three-eyed raven. What are you talking I, about? I, I, no, no, no. But he has like everything to do. I know, but like there's more power than anyone else in the world. I know, but there's all these seeds about just Bran just steely-eyed and like waiting for a ramp to get out of Winterfell because there's no ramp and he's just there in a wheelchair. It's really sad. Anyway, no. He's the Thread Raven who's flying around different places and doing. He still needs a rap. This, this, this. The whole series is very. Yes, it's not. Um, it hates disabled people. It just needs more accessibility in general yes, and representation in general. Just okay. build a ramp. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of commentary on this by Tyrion about what was the uh, sec- second, the first season title uh, the, from the chapter from the. It's actually from the line from the book "Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things." You know, they, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm reclaiming that word. How now. do you feel this this show Cripple has fared in the wake of George R. R. Martin uh, being superseded? I don't think he's been superseded at all. I think people are as excited for ever more excited for the books. Actually, because mm-hmm. now, now that we have the underwhelming ending with the Night King k- killing, they're going to expect George R.R. Martin to do incredible. something something different, which he probably definitely will. Yeah, almost certainly. And, and so, anyway, Game of Thrones is maybe like maybe maybe, maybe actually hang on, maybe this is where the the movie versions of the Game of Thrones have pulled off the ultimate coup. They've made an underwhelming TV series to make sure the books can finally supersede it. So they eventually can make Maybe more money. This is finally the boost that George R. R. Martin will need to just finish it already. Save the books! Like, this, isn't, this isn't what happened. This isn't what happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Suddenly so, a sense of pride steps in. He finds the motivation. Well, chances are he's probably going to die before he's going to finish the series. So, yeah, know, there but, is always oh, what, that. Um, we hope. That's terrible. We hope not. We hope but not. It seems likely if he can make, he needs to have a turnaround, like see the light moment that makes him change his current pace. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. and also this is real life, so people don't come back from dead. <laughs> they just stay dead. Um, so it's kind of nice. A few extra points it's on not a Marvel or Game of Thrones. <laughs> I know. Thank God. A few extra points on representations death of the same the cultural tides. Um, a few frustrating things. Um, the move that Arya used to kill the Night King was taken from Rey from The Last Jedi. I'm thinking that scene in the throne room where she drops the lightsaber into the other hand and then slices the red guard in half. It's exactly what Arya did. Um, the shot is even almost identical. Um, the Dothraki at the beginning, who were just sent off to die, we had no idea how they died. We have no idea what threat they encountered. We have no way to reckon with this. Um, the sequence at the end when it came to the tower scene where they were all running through and we actually had to deal with individual characters where Arya was running to the library much better than anything else that occurred in the battle. That's true. I mean, that's the other thing. This is a long episode. This is probably the longest it episode. It is, 82 minutes. And the, longest battle ever filmed. Yeah. And still, we don't get clarification where each character stands at the end of the episode. It's actually quite a unsatisfying episode in terms of how what is what is the aftermath what is the reckoning where do each character stands at the end of this supposedly great battle for Winterfell is there a reckoning well uh, that's, a, uh, that's th- how it's kind of built th- up and that's what is promised anyway no there, there isn't but there, is, there are reckonings for the main characters who died and by that I mean Theon Melisandre and Jorah they're all in these huge redemptive arcs throughout the entire series Jorah who'd betrayed his homeland and then Daenerys and is now standing fighting with her on his homeland and then passed away I mean away. he just doesn't get to bone her and I feel sad about that uh, Theon who that, that was his entire redemptive arc he just needed to bone her that's unrequited sexual tension there, there was more she to, gets to be- he wanted she, to go she back gets... to Bear Island that was no, what he wanted the whole time he, he wanted to lay his bare hands on her that's what he wanted to do anyway wow. that's, that's... Wow! Instead, um, she gets to have like a funky time with the undead, aka Jon Snow, which is kind of like kind of a, I guess, a step down. I mean, so Jorah is is this quite is dumb. Dating advice. I mean, so Jorah is yeah. quite. Really, a clock. Let's I mean, go for Ian Glenn rather than um, what's his but name? Honestly, um, Kit, uh, Kit Harrington. <laughs> no, no, but like, okay, so Jorah is quite dumb, but he's. Kind of like still alive. He's too bad. He beat yeah. he beat a Dothraki blood rider in single combat. I know, combat. I know. But like he, he was just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, you're my queen. I'm gonna serve you and stuff. But not really. But like you know, because I'm like, oh, temptation, blah blah blah. But like you he know, did you know serve her loyally? Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Uh, after, after he betrayed which, her, which is kind of yeah, I know, <laughs> it's kind of stupid to begin with. But like you know, just keep your heart and your you know 
penis uh, don't intertwine. You know, just keep them separate. It's usually good practice. For steady advice, thank you. Um, Melisandre, who died at the end of the episode after having uh, been complicit in deaths of so many on the battlefield, wanted to save so many more, and sent us and would appears to be sacrificing herself or at least returning and then knowing that that uh, Davos and everyone else would go after her. Um, she played a decisive role in the battle and though it was spelled... I'm going to give a hot take. You know what is going to be the ultimate reckoning? It's going to be Sansa and Daenerys. They're just going to have a bitchy cat fight while Tyrion and wow. Jon are wow. just like okay, so sitting it's, back. That's, that's awful. But this is That's exactly awful. the kind of for misogynistic show that Game of Thrones is, and they're gonna sell it to us, and we're gonna like lap it up. They're just gonna be like, "Oh my god, you get the throne, no, I get the throne, you actually, get the throne, no, I get the throne." And actually, you know, in the equivalent scene in the second to last episode, they have a very serious, um, very diplomatic discussion about this, which was very, very uh, tense. The diplom- the gloves will surely come off very soon. And wink, wink, cue song. <laughs> Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, and the last one, Redemptive Arc, was for Theon Greyjoy. Bran spells that a little too blatantly by saying, you're a good man, Theon. It was the most foreshadowed death of the whole episode. We knew he was going to die, but he did die in a roundly epic way, charging the Night King. And it is interesting that he got such a redemptive after being a horrible person in the first season, after reigning the castle in the second season, and now coming full circle, as I think Jamie is on and has been on the similar trajectory for quite some time. Um, that is the Battle of Winterfell. It is the most epic thing on television. It is the on television now. Biggest Marvel of all, and, and the second <laughs> biggest thing to come out this week. What, what, what actually? What has been more hotly anticipated? Is it the? I don't know. A Game of Thrones finale or this kind of probably this... from mo- more people Marvel, but there's yeah. been more this, this, excitement this, around Game of Thrones. This episode left me cold. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, it was winter. <laughs> winter, winter, winter has come. <laughs> No, no, it was just like, you know, because the Night King, right? So it was quite icy. Anyway, and I wasn't like, I wasn't moved as well, so it left me cold and left me cold. Right. What did you think of Captain levels? America getting his Peggy moment at the end of the movie? That was sweet. It was sweet, but I'd also thought, like, it's just, it's sweet. Okay. It, it is sweet, but it also is just rubbing the character of his tragic backstory. It is, it is. And also, his ass got more mentioned than Peggy Carter in the entire film. Yeah, Chris Evans, how do you feel about this? I know. Um, like... Imagine that I said a female to, character who's supposedly getting you know. I said that I said to Virat that if this were about a female character, it would have been like seventies sexism. But I'm not saying that there's sexism against men in terms of the male gaze kind of thing. No, no, but right? the equivalent. I'm not, I'm not the, the equivalent. <laughs> I'm not saying of that, this. but it's the equivalent level of humor. No, know? no, no. I'm just saying the equivalence of like. Here you have a mainly dramatic interest getting less of screen time and less of a reference than his actual ass. Yeah. I mean, that's it's how Marvel sees female characters. There's no, den- there's no depth of, char- of character. Like Captain there is a America, lot of depth in his padding, though. Yeah, Captain America did nothing but make it, make furrowed brow concerned expressions for the entire movie. And wear extremely tight suits. Everyone, any chance at screen sense. time is sacrificed to the altar of Robert Downey Jr. All right, here's the problem. The scene, the reference first comes off, if memory serves me correctly, is the scene where Iron Man is in the penthouse at the end of Avengers and he makes a comment about Captain America's ass. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so Captain America was not present. How did he know to have that callback later in the film that is America's ass? Yeah, good point. Yeah, how, yeah. How, he wasn't there for that. Like, how would he know? He probably checked himself out. So it was just a random comment about it. Like, yeah. in the middle of all this, yeah, I have a great ass. That yeah. was it. Wow. <laughs> Which is just like, yeah, it's kind of the breaking character thing that I do all the time, right? So, yeah. 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 So, that Hello, one. Peggy Carter. 
And that's why you fell for me, right? Because of my ass, right? Yeah. And that was America's yeah. ass, Avengers Endgame. And, and Cinemas Now. Game of Thrones on TV Game Now. Of Thrones, also America's ass. Stay tuned for Look more. at it and, and love it. Admire it. Yeah. It's the best because it's the yeah. biggest. Critiqued by... The most Austra- powerful. My Australia's ass is... A.K.A. Glenn, Chris, and me. And next Ching. up, we have our interviews with Jeffrey Garner, the Sinner Reborn, Dr. Ender Murray from the Irish Film Festival, and Sean and Dave, who are the directors of the two, the first couple of films screening, Unquiet Graves and Dublin Old School, at the Irish Film Festival. I'm Glenn Falcon, Sniper Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello, people. And freelance writing critic for Up Nehru. Hello! So late, we have. <laughs> the, uh, clearly, the, the, he's the, like, the. Hello! He's the, he's the mascot, quirky one. Happy pills. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and who? I'm having my Red Bull, that's fine. <laughs> yep. And we have another voice here. Who is that? That is Jeffrey Gardner, the director and founder of Cinema Reborn, which is happening from tomorrow at the Round of Grits. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Glenn. Pleasure to be here. It's in its second year, and it's moved to a brand new venue. Now, we want to get into the films, but first of all, Jeff, what is the festival, and this year, what is it all about? Well, it's um, it's the same concept as we we uh, started last year. We were, we've been inspired by a, a, a wonderful event in, in Italy called uh, Il Cinema Ritrovato, which um, these days has 2,500 international visitors, 400 films goes for a, a week and uh, is just a mecca for people interested in seeing old films brought back to to life, uh, explorations of little-known areas of, of uh, films from archives around the world. And so on an incredibly modest scale, we're trying to do something of the same by uh, by taking advantage of all of the film restorations, all of the films available to us from archives around the world and put on a a selection of maybe what we would hope is as good as we can get for for this year. And there's 11 all told uh, over five days. 11. And just quickly, we played in with some music. What was the significance of the tune with which we brought the show in today, different from our usual Elton John-themed tunes? Oh, I think you were playing... um, uh, a piece by Alan Gray, uh, which is the soundtrack of the film we're opening with, A Matter of Life and Death, um, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, made in 1946 um, as part, started as part of the British war effort to encourage fraternisation between um, the Americans and the Brits towards the end of the war. And what they came up with was an amazing comedy drama, fantasy about this world and the next world and this world and the next world's politics and a wonderful love story in the middle. Um, And it's had a wonderful restoration done by Grover Crisp at uh, Columbia so that it just looks like Technicolor looked back in 1946. I I really am looking forward to that because I've really enjoyed everything I've seen from Powell and Pressburger, but I shamefully haven't seen A Matter of Life and Death. Not a matter of shame. It's very, <laughs> they're very hard to see some of these films, uh, particularly in a copy like this. Right. But they're, they're such mm. significant films, though, that mm. I it's, it's something I've been hearing about for years and years mm. and years. Mm. It's nice mm. to finally have the opportunity 
to see it in, in this level of restoration. I saw the restorations of um, Tales of Hoffman and the Red Shoes a oh, few right. years back when yes. they were playing at mm-hmm. the Orpheum, and mm-hmm. the color just looked so beautiful. It does. That early Technicolor, uh, or not early, but um, yes, 10 years or so after Technicolor started with the three-strip process, uh, everything about it, the, the skin tones and, and mm. so on, is just um, it's just quite extraordinary. Uh, so warm. Yes, yeah. It's done by Jack Cardiff, the very famous photographer, and this was the first film he photographed, right. and uh, it just made him a legend uh, from then on, and he went on to not merely photograph a lot of films, but to direct films as well. So, right. Mm. And yes. one I was very interested in, one of my favourite films going back a long way is Sunset Boulevard, and I always look at it as that early 50s noir. However, there's another very early 50s noir immediately preceding Sunset Boulevard, which I didn't know about, but I know now know about because of this program. Another Hollywood tale, uh, indeed. Um, yes, In a Lonely Place, um, directed by uh, the man who did Rebel Without a Cause, Nicholas Ray, Nicholas Ray yeah. uh, black and white. Made by Humphrey Bogart for his own production company um, very early in, uh, in the life of his independence uh, when he, um, he struck a deal with Columbia to do his own thing. And from that moment on, he started playing very much braver parts, much more um, spiky and less likable than, than he had been. He, he sort of went back to what he, when he was playing a heavy and... Uh, in the 30s before the Maltese Falcon. Right. But it's a, it's a wonderful story about Hollywood and with and Gloria Graham, uh, this made her a star. Um, and she was married to Ray at the time, not very happily, but uh, he he ensured that she got the the part. Bogart wanted Lauren Bacall. Right. There were, there were already a lot of films together. Yeah, so. That's right. <laughs> I think it got vetoed by the head of the studio in a, some sort of clannish thing with uh, with others who wanted to give Bogart a bit of a touch-up for declaring his independence and saying, you can, you can be independent so far, but not all the way. How do you make Treasure of the Sierra Madre such a good film? Oh, <laughs> yes, it is, yes. yes. But, uh, yeah, well, the, the Bogart McCall films... Have and have not. Um, what else was Key it? Lager Dark was Passage, great. Key Largo. Yeah, yeah, they are fantastic films. Uh, a lot of chemistry there. Mm. I'm intrigued by the Chantal Ackerman film that you've picked because it's not the usual Chantal Ackerman film that people no. would usually pick. So uh. it's a happy <laughs> Chantal Ackerman film, which is like <laughs> there is probably the only happy <laughs> Chantal Ackerman film out of all the uh, Chantal Ackerman films. Yes, yeah, that was. Um, yeah, that was one of our uh, early early picks, actually, um, and uh, it um, it's been done by the Belgian Film Archive. They they've done the restoration, and um, yes, you're quite right. You don't expect Chantal Ackerman to make a musical. I was really intrigued yeah. by the description because if this, I think it said in the program that this was like a Jacques Demy film on speed. I, it's hard yeah, for me to imagine. I'm, I'm never too sure about uh, descriptions yeah. uh, comparing some sort of a film to some it's sort like of drug. It's like this on drugs. Yeah, yeah, but I can't <laughs> imagine Ackerman making a film with more energy than Demi. Yeah. Do you think that's accurate? Um, well, I think it's probably got a bit more cutting edge about it in that it's, right. it's, it's not a simple romance. Um, uh 
I don't think Demi was quite as interested in the social layers that that go into making sure. this this film and the uh, and the twists of the relationships. Um, and I don't think Demi would have um, made the uh, the ending, which is. Um, Rather a bit downbeat, uh, a right. bit. Um, uh, well, you've learned your lesson. You know, you'll fall in love again, but um, bad luck. All that. Uh, mm. I suppose Demi's umbrellas of umbrellas of shit like that. Does, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> Funny you should mention it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. But. Um, so I, I guess the lesson is um, don't trust any drug metaphors in uh, uh, on the back of the box. I've never, as, as uh, here's a confessional moment, as someone who has put very, very small amounts of drugs into their body, I wouldn't know what most people are talking about. <laughs> I saw this and like, hmm, I don't know, I'm going to go with one of the low-key black and white ones. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, maybe an aspirin. <laughs> It's like a matter of life and death on aspirin. Yeah. We're a red bull, so that's like our limit in terms of what we're ready for. Yes, that's, I'm close to that. Too. Yes, yes. Imagine if Jacques Demy drank a red bull. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But it's a very easy, uh, yes, very easy sort of thing that that, that uh, film reviewers and critics do. I love, you know, I love these uh, little that, prefab that, phrases. That, that thing, yes, of... Uh, Something it's like something on acid, or it's like yeah. something on dope. Or but also, actually, Chris, that's an interesting point. I I can't actually imagine Jacques Demy on Red Bull would be more energetic than he actually was in yeah, real life, anyway. Yeah. So, mm, like, mm, is that even possible? Like, yeah. that's already like peak energy. Yes, a Red Bull would not have so, any difference. That period, anyway. Yeah. But um, yeah. yeah. How did uh, another film I wanted to ask you about was Wonder, the Barbara Loden film. Yeah. Um, mm. It's uh, probably the only significant film she directed, right? But a, the a only landmark. film she directed, right? Yes, right. Yes, yes, yes. She uh, she was an actress um, who was married to the director Elia Kazan, mm. and uh, I think you know they moved in in a fairly wealthy circles, and uh, the story goes that. They were away on safari or something like this. And when one of the people had said she must have been talking to them about a movie and they said, oh, I'll give you some money to uh, to write that script. Mm. So she wrote the script for Wanda and then couldn't find anybody to uh, direct it, including Kazan himself, who didn't, uh, didn't think there was much in it. And so someone else came forward and they made the film. She made the film uh, and starred in the film. And uh, they went out to uh, the back blocks of Pennsylvania to make it. And um, it must be a very small crew. Um, you know, even even the restored copy of this film is sort of low budget 16 mil this is uh, yeah this is not uh, a demi type uh, color uh, extravaganza or anything like that i heard yeah that this mm. is just an absolute micro production mm. made with a skeleton crew and it mm. was never even properly released when it was made at the time was it um as far as i'm aware the only screenings that have really been held that you know it's it's you can now find it on on dvd if you look hard enough on amazon but uh um are the one that it had 
back in 1970 or 71 at the Sydney Film Festival. Mm. And it, it is fair to say it was not well appreciated at that screening. Um, people got very restless at, uh, at this. They, they were not used film. to seeing, seeing uh, a woman of this kind on the screen. You know, she's got very low self-esteem. She just puts up with so much. And um, people started drifting out. I was, I was at the screening, uh, you know, shows how old I am. But uh, suddenly there's a moment when the guy she's with, this horrible bloke, start saying we're going to commit a robbery and they start rehearsing for this robbery and all of a sudden the audience oh robbery going to happen here we <laughs> we'll stay and see this to see what happens because we can't possibly believe these people can pull off a robbery so um uh, that, that kept everyone sat, sort of sat more bolt upright then uh, but since then, this this film has stuck in people's minds far more than uh, a lot of other films made in 1970. I'll tell you that. And yes. mm. from how you were describing the complexity of her character, um, mm. I was reading uh, people writing up about this, the suggestion that this is an attempt to show a real woman on the screen, that mm. this is her own mm. experience sort of... Um, imposed onto this story of a robbery and viewing mm. that as a sort of metaphorical mm. sign of desperation perhaps do you mean her own the director's own experience or perhaps the, the, the creation i think it's a character that she's created right i don't i don't, I don't know that barbara loden never suffered from lack of self-esteem but right, uh, right. um but yeah it's but it is a female character that is not not the usual of of its day or even terribly common now. Uh, right. She really does suffer. Join me on Saturdays from 8pm for Keeping Score. My name is Leah and each week we'll unravel the soundtracks and musical scores from some of our favourite movies. The soundtrack to your Saturday night. Keeping score on 2SCR 107.3. We are back with Jeff Gardner from Cinema Reborn, which is kicking off at Afters tomorrow, Thursday. No, is... it's at the Randwick Ritz. Sorry, what did I just say? Afters? <laughs> yes. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> well, this gives us a perfect opportunity to talk about the change in location. Uh, yes, <laughs> it does. That was perfect. Ah, yes, this was deliberate, I see. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> Afters, um, we we had some difficulty with with afters, and um, in fact, we had just about given up on holding a festival this year. And, and uh, right after that, right after that, um, I, you, I remember actually I remember getting your email and just thinking, no, like this just started. It's great. I'm not seeing any of these films anywhere. Yeah. I, I, I was I was over, just no, no. But we've had good news. We've had good yeah, news. Yeah, and. Um, by chance, um, Eddie Tamir, uh, the Melbourne theatre owner, had just bought the Randwick Ritz. And one of our committee knew Eddie and got in touch with him. But we we really only went to talk to him about um, 2020. Uh, we just thought, we can't do this. Uh, it's, it's, it's fallen in a heap. Um, Eddie then um, sort of gently probed where we were up to and 
what we told him was that we were in the hole for about $8,000 worth of film rental that we'd already paid. And at that point he said, well, what happens if it doesn't go on? And I said, well, there's, we're not getting much in the way of answers to our emails about can we get our money back. So we've, we may well have uh, done our dough. And he said, let's do it. And he stood up very, very sort of you know, formally, held out his hand, made me stand up. He said, done. And that was it. And, well, that's great. Good uh, on and him. Uh, we, had, we had the whole thing back on the road within 24 hours, really. I think we were that's sending fantastic. out the next email saying, oh, hold, hold, reset. <laughs> and, um, and we had to limit what we were doing because Afters has got fantastic equipment for 35 mil mm. archival screenings, which the Ritz doesn't have. Mm. Um, and Afters can play everything to a beautiful picture quality from a USB stick to all sorts of odd files. They have really you know, put a lot of money into their projection equipment and the Ritz is a commercial cinema. It has sort of standard mm. things for digital cinema packages. And um, so we, we had to... We, we were thinking of maybe 20 films, but we've had to halve that to about 11 Um and we would have been screening sort of day and night, but anyway, we're 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 happy to do this because the the, the films we had to pay for uh, were the sort of the key films, the thing that the whole thing is built around, not the not the smaller events, the the, the little little curios and so on that uh, that we did last year. But um, we're we're more than happy with uh, with where we've landed. Mm. And um, for listeners who may recognise Eddie Eddie's wants to go to Melbourne as well, so uh, you that's know, we'll have to think about that. <laughs> that's excellent news. Yes, mm. Eddie being is. a touring festival would be great. <laughs> what yeah. I'm saying is, <laughs> please don't leave Sydney. Yeah, don't leave. Don't leave Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, Eddie, listen, don't leave Sydney. <laughs> no, well, we we operate almost because Sydney doesn't have the sort of regular Cinematheque screenings that that Melbourne has. They don't have the the you know a bunch of volunteers who put a program together of, you know, maybe 100 films a year that uh, that the Melbourne Cinematheque does. and That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So we're uh, we're almost filling a, a very small vacuum in, in, in that. And, this, uh, I mean, mm. I think the situation for seeing classic films in a cinema environment is actually much worse now than it was 10 years ago. I mm. think so too. But I yeah. think this is one of the things that's rejuvenating that and it's wonderful mm. to see. And mm. just for those who might have recognised the name, Eddie Tamir, Eddie was on the show last year. He is also the director of the Jewish National Film Festival and was interviewed in regards to that program as oh, well. Right. But it's really good that, uh, I mean, Cinema Reborn and other kind of uh, festivals are trying to bring back you know, movie culture as such in Sydney mm. because otherwise it's just uh, me and Chris and Ian hanging out at a film club in Darlinghurst. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> uh, Glenn. Glenn is like, you know, he comes and goes. He's a more of a participant. We are, we are, we are the torchbearers. Uh, it really takes so much black and white. <laughs> but um, do you think that Cinema Reborn, or is part of the reason you run Cinema Reborn to add to the culture, you know, to keep the community of film going in Sydney? Mm. Well, you know, uh, it's 
there's there's so many sort of little reasons why you 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 do something, but certainly, yes, it's it's it is an intention to you know to wind up the cultural thing, um, you know, so that your listeners can see I'm holding up uh, the the the, uh, the copy of our program that will be being printed uh, as we speak, uh, and it's the sort of thing that we think an event like this needs really substantial writing about film by people who know what they're talking about not little capsule things uh, a couple of the essays are well over a couple of thousand words if you can play your way through them so that we we like that we like having somebody who knows something about the film introduce it so that it uh, it hopefully kicks kicks off the appreciation straight away because a lot of a lot of films from all sorts of times you know are added to by putting them in some context, uh, relating them to something else. We just had a an email today from Paul Harris um, down in Melbourne, who's who's coming up again for the festival. When just asked for his favourites, and he said, "Your favourite has to be to go and see everything." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, well, it'd be nice if there's a thousand people think that, but um, but. That, that's true. Um, you know, there there is a sort of completest desire in a lot of people to uh, to to see everything. Um, Listening to what you were saying just then, I, I think the committee of Cinema Reborn really sound like champions of of cinema in Sydney right now. Mm. I like that nothing is dumbed down about the program. It's really adventurous choices. You're not going for the films that play often. Or even the you know the most well-known films from their respective directors. It's really more about serving up a treat to discerning cinephiles, I think, by the sounds of it, hmm. and trying to respect people's intelligence. Hmm. Well, if if there is any sort of model uh, from what happened in Sydney, um, I'd actually go back a long way to the film festivals that David Stratton ran in the 70s and into the 80s when Sydney Film Festival really was a fantastic event. It only screened about 50-odd films. Uh, You could see everything if you sat there all day and all night in um, places like the Winter Garden and the State. Um, And it was a genuinely... You know, it was a really serious intent about what they were doing... Um, and David wasn't frightened to do what you say about us that that you know go down a byway uh, look look for a film that you've you've found somewhere from Turkey or Cuba or something like that because it's important that 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 film get get screened and it's up to us to sort of convince people that this is going to be really worth their uh, worth their time. Mm. In terms of actually, what are the other comments you made earlier about the City Film Festival really struck me? Because looking at this year's program and last year's program, there's a lot of content which I know hasn't played necessarily in Australia before, but content, as you said, that has but played many years ago may have gone underappreciated or undervalued. And I know a lot of festivals focus on bringing something that is new. Certainly the City Film Festival does that now, but there's an enormous value into purely revisiting something that mm. has been... Um, appreciated or valued in so long, if ever, in an Australian context. Yeah. And sometimes I feel those two things can coincide. I mean, something that you have Mm. probably seen can also be new. Mm. Like, uh, 
I remember you talking about uh, women in their lived experiences and still being miserable in that sense. So it just reminded me of The Nun, which is a film we haven't talked mm. about, which is just the most <laughs> odd segue now that I think about it. But no, I I'm guess I've just made it, so I can't take it back. Apparently, <laughs> stories about yeah. unusual women um, would be having a resurgence now with such a focus on feminism, I think, in mm. the culture at the moment. Mm. Well, um, The Nun... Uh, has has an amazing sort of story all of its own. You know, it was um, based on a 17th century novel by a um, um, libertarian writer of the of the day. Um, a new stage adaptation was done in the early 60s. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard apparently financed the stage production because it starred his then wife, Anna Karina. Uh, Jacques Rivette directed the, the show on stage. And then I think George de Beauregard is the producer, and he said, let's make a movie. And so they thought, fine. It's, and they, they made an exceptionally good one, except that the French authorities thought it was shockingly anti-clerical. Uh, Madame de Gaulle apparently intervened to ensure that the film was kept off the screen for a couple of years. And... Um, uh, the film sort of acquired this level of notoriety that uh, really it doesn't warrant, but um, but it's 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 kept it going. They brought it back at Cannes last year, and um, there you can see all of the uh, the themes of patriarchy, female oppression, um, uh, the uh, you know malign role of the church in uh, in in everyone's affairs and um, uh, it's I think it is what it is but uh, we're really pleased to have it uh, I know uh, we uh, we when we heard about it we kept thinking oh it'll probably be grabbed by the Sydney Film Festival or someone or someone else or the French Film Festival or someone but uh, no. no they didn't so it uh, it fell to us and it's also having screenings in um, Canberra and Adelaide that one that's um, been you know they, they leapt all over that when we when we put it to them mm. Um, another film I'm looking forward to seeing is one recently there's been a lot of political commentary surrounding Cuba and uh -huh. the ro role in the world and also a lot of increased tourism not just from Australia but <coughs> around the world given some of the changes in some sense that are happening there and you have mm. one of the most significant films screening at this festival in Cuban cinematic history. Some say the best. Um, Memories of Underdevelopment made by I'll never get this right Thomas Gutierrez Alea um, probably the finest director that Cuba produced. Uh, he made about a dozen features, but this one uh, is quite remarkable. It's set between the time of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it focuses on this uh, uh, well-to-do Cuban businessman who is just completely lost as the revolution overtakes him. And uh, his friends and family all leave for some reason. He stays, and um, it's it's a very very uh, sophisticated discussion about what the revolution did to the middle classes and how they reacted or didn't. And um, 
uh, yeah, I think it's that's again Bologna themselves uh, restored this film a, a couple of years ago, and uh, we're really very pleased. We we thought about including it last year, but we couldn't fit it in. So we're still available again this year. So yeah, that's where we're gone. Mm. I'm actually mm. interested in every film at the festival, so I'll see how many I can pack in. It's um, a, it's a really incredible program. But having just eleven films, I think you've got a really wide mm, variety mm, and a lot mm. of things that sound really interesting. There's one long day, four yeah. films uh, on the Saturday, but um, all the rest is manageable. We've taken mm. those kinds of challenges before at Sydney Film Festival. I think this will be. <laughs> I, I, I think I will enjoy this more. I think we're gonna have a, a lot. We're gonna have a lot more. It's going to be very eclectic. I think a lot more eclectic yeah. than we used to even as going as many festivals yeah. as we do. But before we get into um, the rest of the program... We've even given you a lunch break on the Saturday. Thank you. My favourite creperie is across the road, as is backcountry. Oh, so I'm just going straight there and coming straight back out. Yeah, but yeah, the, the, the Ritz area, the spot is great. It's yeah. much better food choices than the, than the entertainment yeah. got up. Good Thai and the vegan burger place around the corner. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a new uh, a new tie opened up uh, in the last few weeks called Moonshine. So okay. uh, I haven't oh, tried that I, yet. I have yeah. I have been there. Yes. Yeah. Good. Good, good curry. Oh, I liked it. Mm. Um, but before we get into um, the rest of the program, I'd like to know we've talked about a few films. Is there one that we haven't spoken about that really stood out to you? Well, the one that I really want to see because I haven't seen it. And I missed it. I didn't go to see it at uh, Bologna, where it had its premiere last year. Is the final final night's film called Neapolitan Carousel. Um, it is a musical history of Naples, and the colour in it is just extraordinary. You can actually see a copy on YouTube if you want, and don't mind the Russian subtitles. But uh, my, Russian, from... my Russian is terrible. <laughs> You're right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Um, but you can get an idea of what the colour's like. Um, it's, well, what would you say? Uh, you know, it starts a music, a guy who sells sheet music in the street uh, has his music blown away in a gust of wind. It falls in different parts of the city. As you come into each piece of music, randomly it picks up on a whole series of historical incidents that uh, that... Naples has been involved in and um, there are little stories, there are little ballets it's, it, it is remarkable and uh, it is the one that I really regretted missing I, people came out of it and I'm going oh I knew I was supposed to go somewhere and said I'm just sitting there having dinner or something and, uh, <laughs> and they're all going oh you missed that oh. so um, make sure to finish my crepe I, uh, I was very very uh, pleased one of our, um, our uh, friend in Melbourne Peter Hurrigan uh, when I said, you know, tell me some titles, he said, you must screen this film. And he said, I saw it in Swan Hill in 1957 at the local Italian cinema. Uh, <laughs> and I've been wanting to see it again ever since. So he didn't miss it uh, at Bologna. And he's doing the introduction for it too. Where do we go? How do we get tickets? How do we get there? Uh, well, um, it's at the Ritz Cinema in Randwick in Sydney. Um, although there are people coming from interstate, we've been getting some some notes about uh, about that in the last few days. So uh, uh, that's that's really good. Uh, it starts on Thursday night at six thirty. The first film. Then there are a couple more on Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Four films, all black and white, 
on Saturday uh, and three, four, three more on Sunday and a final one on Monday night uh, of an Italian Powell and Pressburger type musical. Um, normal Ritz admission prices uh, just roll up at the door. Uh, we're in a reasonably good size cinema so I don't think there'll be any problems about getting in so you can make your decision quite late. You can book online if you go to the Ritz. And um, uh, I always say seniors, $10. Because <laughs> our now, audience now, seems I'm, to have a lot of seniors. I'm pretty sure a lot of young people will be very excited to see these films as well. Oh, that would be nice. Let's yes, hope. Yes, Maybe. That, that would be nice. There are student concessions, of course. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. Um, but yes, uh, there are 11 programs, and um, all of them introduced by people with some, um, some good, intelligent thoughts. Uh, and our website has got a lot of program notes if people are curious as well. Well, we're mm. looking forward to it, and we will all be there. So if you see, just shout out for Film Fight Club and just come say hi and come say hi to Jeff. It's this Thursday through Sunday at the Ritz, and we'll be back right after this with the director of the fifth annual and every annual Irish Film Festival. Stay tuned. Jeff, thanks so okay. much, mate. Talk to you. Thank you. See you soon. Pleasure. Welcome back to Film Fight Club, and we are talking all things Irish Film Festival. It is the fifth annual Irish Film Festival, kicks off tonight at the Penrith Gales Club, and then tomorrow through Sunday at the Chevelle Cinema in Pennington. And we have with us the director and founder of the Irish Film Festival, Dr. Ender Murray. Ender, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Oh, really good. It's good. Uh, good. Looking forward to another run. It's been going yep. every year, and um, yeah, the program for this year, it's really spectacular, man. Thanks very much. Yeah, we've um, expanded. We've got um, 10 features instead of eight, and we've got the short film competition again. We've got a program of LGBTQI shorts from um, the Gays Festival in Ireland, and I've got to say... Uh, blowing my own trumpet um, a a, um, a documentary that I've made with um, Irish seniors in Sydney called A Lifetime of Stories This is is one of the first not the first Australian produced film that is screened at the Irish Film Festivals, is that right? Um, uh, Apart from the shorts um, yes, you're probably right there, yes Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to that, and so are the um, the, the uh, subjects from the documentary. They're looking forward to it too. In fact, they've they've bought loads of tickets. This is great. It's been a big seller, so maybe we should make more films in, what in le- Australia. Can you tell us what led you to making this documentary? What uh, it was the inspiration behind wanting to tell the stories of Irish youth, you know, elderly people in Australia? Well, um, I have a, a big interest in. Um, uh, uh, culture from migrant populations, and uh, I lived in in London. I lived in England for ten years, and I made uh, films about uh, Bangra from from the Punjab and and um, sound systems from Jamaica. Mm. And um, so uh, I come to Sydney, and uh, I just heard, heard some fantastic stories. Um, we, we've got some incredible. Uh, Stories. One 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 guy who was ninety years old who came here for the snowies. He he uh, he'd been to America prior to that. 
you know, these guys have been all over the world from the west coast of Ireland. Uh, another guy who um, uh, was was in um, uh, sailing ships go, that were handmade sailing ships that, from the west of Ireland going over to France. Another woman who came to, to Australia in 1974 on the Magic Bus all the way from London. And mm. She brought her brother down to Victoria Station. He, looked, he took one look at the bus. He said, that's not going to get to Dover, let alone Kathmandu. But, um, but it, it, she got here. So, yeah, these the, the, um, uh, just fantastic stories from, right, right. Uh, from Irish people. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to that. Get screening on the Saturday. Oh, so that one's on the Friday at uh, 4 o'clock. Friday. At Cheval, yeah. Right. A lifetime of stories. And the one screening after that, it's not just screening at the Chevelle on Friday, but it's also screening tonight at the Penrith Girls Club. It's a documentary, and you also have the director who's come out all the way from Belfast um, to present his new film. Yeah, so this is a film called Unquiet Graves, and uh, it's a film which looks into collusion between uh, British government and uh, loyalist uh, paramilitary forces and um uh sean murray is the director he's come out from belfast um sean in the documentary uh raises the possibility that more than 120 people were murdered in the uh, uh the, the year 72 to 78 um uh, by the, by these gangs um and possibly with the knowledge of the british government so this is uh, it's, it's really uh contentious issue it's been causing a, a lot of um headlines in uh, ireland and um, sean's on his way after australia's on, on his way to for a tour of, of america with the film so um it's it's it, it's a um a very important issue um northern ireland has uh, been in the news again um there's quite a lot of tension there mm. caused by the brexit yes. um and so uh, it, this is a a really timely film have at the festival. The other opening night gala film at the opening on Chevelle sounds like um, a sort of change of pace from that. Float Like a but- uh, Butterfly, a by the sounds of it, a sort of gritty social realist but inspirational boxing story about a teenage girl. Would you say that's an accurate description? Um, uh, uh, no disrespect, but probably not. I, I wouldn't say it's gritty. It's uh, Interesting. It, it's actually, it's actually, I would say, more uh, inspiring than uh, that, than than gritty realism. So it's yes, yeah, set in 1972, so it's period piece, and um, it, it's a um, film about a young traveller uh, in Ireland, um, uh, gypsy the children that uh, uh, they, they, they um, name that they prefer is uh, travellers. So. Um, it's about a young traveller who wants to be a boxer, um, and um, she's so she's battling against um, the discrimination against her community in in, in Ireland because certainly at the time travellers were very much on the on the on the outer. Um, but then she's also uh, battling a, kind of a, a gender issue with her dad, who's a very traditional guy, and wants her to get married. Uh, exactly. Right. Yes, um, but it's fantastic uh, performance by Hazel Doop uh, and and a great um, 
uh, 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 debut by Carmel Winters, the director. And these, so these are the guys that made uh, Sing Street and uh, Once. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, they, they have got a, a really solid track record of um, making making films that are, uh, have got a, 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 a message, but they're, they're, they're entertaining and they're, they're great films to watch. So mm. I think it's going to be a perfect opening night. It does sound like so, a crowd pleaser. It is, yes. Um, and and um, uh, I think House of Dukes got a, a bright future. It's a great great performance uh, by by her. Well, if Sing Street and Once or anything to go off, then it's going to be an excellent film. I am looking forward to it. I will be there. I'm very much looking forward to the opening night party on Thursday. Another film I'm looking forward to is you also have a director who's come out all the way from Dublin for a film he has produced and directed about um, two long lost brothers, and which goes quite into. A, well, I just spent some time in Dublin myself. This isn't an element of Dublin that I got to know, but I think our audiences will very shortly be exposed to. Yeah, so uh, Dublin old school, based very much on the um, illegal rave scene in Dublin in the, in the early 90s. Um, uh, it was kind of a wave that was uh, sweeping Europe. And um, uh, Dave Tynan is the uh, director, writer-director, um, and Dave comes from a, a kind of a stable of creatives which, uh, who have been doing some great stuff in, in Ireland, marrying up um, film with theatre, with uh, club culture. So they're, they're doing performances, uh, theatre performances at, at, at um, uh, music festivals, you know, running stages. Um, uh, and, uh, I think it's a really interesting um, area. I, I, I'm a music nerd myself, and I've got to say I did spend some time at uh, uh, various uh, raves, both legal and illegal, back in the 90s. So um, nice. this is a, a, an area that uh, is close to my heart. The scene seems to be coming back in the UK now and definitely coming back in Australia. So it's it's timely for a retrospective look at that period, I think. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, I, I live in Marrickville, and I don't think there's a weekend oh, yeah. goes by where where I don't hear the boom, boom, boom. Um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, the uh, the, the um, uh, of the parties, and and uh, you know, they they are very much of their time. Um, uh, you know, uh, the the um, the lockout laws and and the, the general kind of attitude to uh, young people uh, having fun exists. Is this today? You know, God we, forbid. We, yeah. we had it back in. in um, uh, I remember while in England, they actually tried to legislate against techno music. Oh, uh, God. Believe it or not. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, as as a kind of a, uh, a student of, of culture myself, um, I, I, I find these um, kind of places of. Uh, 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 you know, music and uh, meeting of uh, young people, which is what happens at, uh, at raves. Mm. Um, yeah, really, just really interesting um, locations uh, for, 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 you know, for, for stories, right? Finding out what's, yeah, for stories and for, for, for uh, finding out about society. You know, mm. look at the, the underbelly and look what, you know, look, look what happens in the, in the, when they kind of have a party. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And on that note, um, 
so to some degree, there seem to be a lot of films that touch on music. Um, another one is the drummer and the keeper. Um, yeah. Not, you know, the lead character is a drummer. It sounds like music is more tangential to that kind of story, and that one's more about. Um, I, reading the description, I thought this sounds like it's a drama about manipulation. Um, I could again be totally off the mark. I, my track record so far hasn't been good. <laughs> um, um, look, um, the the, the um, drummer and the keeper. We we tried to actually get this last year and we couldn't. So we're really happy to get it this year because it's. Uh, I, I I I think in terms of a crafted uh, drama, it's a, a fantastic film. It's. It, it was written by, written and directed by a guy called Nicky Kelly, who was lead singer with a band called Fat Lady Things back in the in the eighties in um, in Ireland when I was um, doing uh, gigs myself. Put we we put put on gigs in uh, back in Drada, um, and and I think his, his rock and roll sensitivity really comes uh, through. It's it, it's 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 kind of based around music. Um, but it's got a lot of light and dark, and I think that's what we really liked about it. That it's got funny bits, but it it it, it, um, uh, it, it works really well in terms of what it's trying to say. And it, and it, you know, you could watch it on a couple of different levels, which I always think is is great for um, uh, for film. Mm. I found it interesting that the two leads of this are somebody who's really suffering from bipolar and somebody with Asperger's syndrome. Yeah, it, 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 I suppose it looks on paper like it might be worthy, but boring. Um, yeah, I wondered how the, this is going to be handled. No, it's actually not because um, you know I, I think it, it, it's um, I think it's handled really well, and I think um, uh, the uh, uh, young guy, uh, particularly. Um, uh, Christopher, who uh, has the Asperger's, is, is a fantastic performance, um, and it's yeah, it's, it's very uh, it's very funny and a very enjoyable film. Mm. I like um, it how you said it sounds like it's going to be worthy. I would prefer yeah. the approach of letting people be people <laughs> rather than you know going for almost like that Oscar bait kind of vibe, like we are making a movie about issues. Yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely. Um, like I, it, it doesn't shy away from uh, the, the problems that the guys have, but I, I think it um, it presents them as people as as, as very rounded characters, right, even though right. that you know that they have flaws. And I think you know at the end of the day, we all have flaws. Yeah, it sounds what, like what a... did Leonard what did Leonard say? Was that it, it, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Right, and, and I, I, I love that quote. So Leonard Cohen. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, it sounds like a really interesting film. It is. It's re- it's really well put together. The, um, uh, Nicky Kelly, like he spent a lot of, uh, a long time in advertising after he packed in his rock and roll singing, and and uh, he's he's been around. Yeah, it's a, it's just a really well put together film. And another one I'm quite looking forward to. I think it's screening on the Sunday. I just spent one of the best months of my life in Ireland. It was my second trip there. And some of that was spent in County Clare and just south of County Clare in Dingle. And what I learned in Dingle, something I didn't know, was that there is an amazing surfing culture in Ireland. And I was really excited to see that there is a film that covers this in quite some detail. Yeah. And this is um, between land and sea. And 
it's um, uh, set in La Hinch in County Clare. Um, it, it, again, really interesting kind of social context. Like uh, my, uh, my my dad grew up from the west of Ireland, and and when we go back there, it would just be really sad because all the young people had left. But there, about twenty five years ago, people started getting into surf, getting into surfing, and these guys who are in this film between land and sea uh, are actually professional surfers who've come back to Ireland after after being on the uh, on the circuit, international circuit. So, you know, f- uh, 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 some people might think surfing in Ireland, oh, that's got to be like a comedy or something. Uh, but <laughs> no, these, these guys are the real deal. And, you know, there's, there's a wave that comes in underneath the cliffs of Mohar, which are these, um, I think they're about 300 metres, uh, sheer drop into the sea. Um, and there's a wave that comes in, which has got to be like eight or nine meters high. It, uh, uh, sorry, I'm not a surfer, but they are very, very big and very scary. And these guys have to go out and, you know, at the back of a, what, it, what do you call these little motorboat um, scooter things, they have to be towed out. Um, and if, you, if they don't do do the wave properly, they, get, they end up getting smashed. So um, it, it's just some fantastic photography. Of course, they've all got wetsuits because it's bloody freezing. But uh, what I what I what I especially like about it is not only does it look at their surfing, but it also looks at kind of the lives that these guys have decided to make back in the on the west coast of Ireland, having babies, having families, um, set, setting up permaculture and living in yurts. Um, yeah, full on hippies in some way, but you know it's come through the surf surfing. Um, type of culture, which is something that I've uh, connected with in, in Australia, that idea of, um, you know, you, could, you can tell people who are, are really into their surf because they've got that connection with, um, with nature and, and they appreciate what, 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 what nature is all about. And you, it's that kind of uh, wisdom that um, uh, you, you find with, um, you know, people who, who are in, into their surfing kind of zen, um, you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm, you, yeah. Australian, Australian guys. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I really like that. Um, so, so yeah, to to um, to have a, a an Irish surf movie in Australia, uh, it's really good. And and um, Ross um, uh, Whitaker, the the, the um, director, has just gone on to to make a fantastic film with um, uh, Katie Holmes, the Irish boxer. So um, it, it, the, the um, uh, direction, uh, directing in, the, in this documentary is really good. Mm, great, beautiful. It sounds yeah. And one of the and we've talked about a number of films that we're excited to see. But what we haven't asked you is uh, from the films we haven't raised. Is there one that particularly stands out to you, and that you're particularly excited to present to audiences? Um, I really like um, the the, the uh, No Party for Billy Burns. Which is a very cheap, really low-budget film made in a very small town on the border, um, and it's it's kind of an absurdist uh, tale about this young guy who Walter Mitty character who he wants to be a cowboy, um, right. and um, just the you know, he comes from County Cavan, so it rolls off the tongue a Cavan cowboy, um, but. Um, I used to read a lot of poetry by Patrick Kavanagh a long time ago, and this this kind of reminds me of Pat, it's like Patrick Kavanagh in a Stetson, this this kind of small town 
um, uh, craziness and uh, who really captures uh, the the uh, small town atmosphere uh, in in the film, and um, it features a lot of locals, pretty much I think playing themselves. But um, uh, uh, I suppose that you know that's the kind of filmmaking that I come from, kind of grassroots and community. Mm. Um, so um, I, I really respect um, you know guys who are still uh, working in in that area and doing a great job. Mm, beautiful. It is special when you can see whether it be your community or any community, not just be very present, but be a sense of character and, in but the al- film. And also, you know, a strong artistic collaborator with the filmmaker, right? It sounds like this is really an effort by the town, both in terms of the production and putting in their efforts to be in and, and yeah, place out their locations, you know, to the filming. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really, really um, nicely uh, put together, um, not, albeit on a shoestring, but um, it really works. It's, really, really, it's got some great moments. Mm. Could be a director to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Padraig Conaty, he, he's actually the winner from last year of our short film competition last year. Where, yes. Uh, uh, and, and again... It was that same kind of uh, tone, and uh, it was a, it was a um, you know someone who's an outsider in a small town. Um, You're not a man at all was the name of his uh, short film. So definitely um, a, a guy with a lot of talent, Patrick mm-hmm. Conaty. I had a strange experience last year with that. That was the, one of the few settings I missed, but I was go karting with a friend of mine, Al, who is from a small town just north of um, Kilkenny, and he was apparently staying with um, the winner of the short film competition. So I heard about it um, um, during the session out in uh, the Blacktown. It's like, oh, my mate won the uh, short film world, the Irish Film Fest. So I'm sorry I didn't get to see that session, but I am looking forward to seeing his film this year. I think that's on the Sunday. That's correct. Yep. No party for Billy Burns. No party for Billy Burns. We want to go to the Irish Film Festival. Where do we get tickets? How do we get there? So, um, uh, irishfilmfestival.com.au. And, um, yeah, tonight we're in Penrith, but then uh, tomorrow, uh, opening night at Chevelle in Paddington, and we're there for the whole weekend. Well, we hope to see you there. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Well, and uh, it's been really great to chat, and we're looking forward to catching up at Penrith and at the Chevelle over the weekend, and well done on putting the festival together, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a million, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We're here with Sean Murray, the director of Unquiet Graves, which has its Australian premiere at the Irish Film Festival, the fifth annual Irish Film Festival in Sydney. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I really am interested to talk about the film, but can you tell us Unquiet Graves? What is it? What is it all about? Well, the film uh, details the killing of over 120 civilians by members of the British Army and members of the local police force, the RUC, uh, in a period between 1972 and 1978. Now, through the course of this film, you speak to a lot of people who have a stake in the investigation, investigators themselves and the persons, the victims' families. How did you go up getting access to such a plethora of individuals from such a range of walks of life? Well, it was lucky in the sense that I began work with the to work with the uh, two human rights groups, uh, the Pat Finucane Centre and Justice for the Forgotten. So they were they had already gained access to a lot of the, the victims and survivors who were interviewed in the film. Uh, and once once I'd made inroads there, I'd met 
a lot of the, the, the families almost four years ago. And really the, the project snowballed from there, so it was four, four years in the making. Four years in the making, it's a huge investment. And obviously the story is, um, while it's been developing for decades, is still, as we see in the film, very much an ongoing tale. Well, it is, yes. Uh, it's, it's very central to the whole legacy debate around the, the, the conflict. We're almost we're over uh, 10 years from the Good Friday Agreement, which is, was the peace settlement in, in the north of Ireland. And the biggest issue around peace at the minute is how narratives uh, are, 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 that re, look at the conflict. So basically this film is a rebalancing of the narrative of the conflict because everything, everything that was seen through broadcast media was seen through the prism of a terrorist campaign. But there's there's two communities. One one uh, community were afforded that word terrorist, as in you know terrorist armed groups. But state terrorism was never recognised. It was white it was whitewashed, and uh, broadcast media. Uh, there's a monopoly of victimhood that still was that was there during the conflict and still exists today around the legacy debate. If you were a victim of state violence, you were never afforded. Those that same platform and these films uh, debunk those those old myths and bring bring those, uh, the, the, the voices of those victims to the fore. Because what I found really interesting, it doesn't just talk about individual perpetrators of some of these acts. It talks about persons up the chain of command, and it as, and many persons in the film speak to how high this actually goes. Yeah, well, it's very, very difficult to pinpoint who at the, who at the top were involved, but there's certainly that the, the heads of British military intelligence were definitely involved in, in wide-scale collusion and the murder of innocent Catholics during the conflict. And what I do is I give a colonial context in the film, and I look at issues around Latin America, etc., and Britain's colonial role in the former Middle East, where Frank Kitson, uh, in his book, actually, where he would have used the words, you need to poison the water uh, to, to remove uh, you know, support within these communities. So, so basically, the, the plan from the Kitson's plan when he went into Ireland, uh, which he had you know, used in, in, in the Middle East, was to go in and use armed groups, right-wing armed groups, to murder innocent people so that those communities where these innocent people were killed would remove support uh, for the IRA. But, I mean, violence begets violence, and what happens is uh, that's counterproductive, you know, and it's also immoral. Absolutely. And I was going to say this question to later in the interview, but I did note that in the past, I was just in Ireland myself, and there is a lot of discussion about what is happening in Northern Ireland. And also in the last week, we have seen very tragic, well, a couple of weeks, tragically, a journalist of my own age who was killed in um, in the North. And, I, and from this perspective, what do you believe that your film has to show us about and teach us or can reflect on um, what is happening in Ireland and Northern Ireland today? Well, the major debate around my film and, 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 and films like mine is that people would say, why are you dragging up the past? Why are you looking at historical issues here? You're dragging up the past. These things need to stay in the past so we can move on to the future. But I argue differently. Uh, what I say is, is that, and the film tells us, is that we need uh, for a younger generation to learn about the past. They need to see how bad it was, how close we were uh, to civil war. And we need to learn the lessons of the past to move into the future. We can't leave those skeletons uh, in the closet because th- those issues can reignite. And the death of young Lyra McKee, the journalist who was killed last week, just gives a, 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 an indication of how close we can, we can come to uh, to becoming involved in a conflict again, you know. 
Now, we, as has been discussed, you spoke to a lot of um, interview subjects throughout the film, but there's one who you went into quite some detail with who really stood out to me. It was someone who appeared at least a number of decades ago. Sympathies appear to be on the other side from uh, many of the others you interviewed, certainly the victims' families. I think the interview might have taken place around Cape Town. That's the whistleblower, John Weir, yeah? Yes. John, Blair, or John Weir sorry, was an ex policeman who was involved in the killing of a, a young man, a young Catholic called William Strathairn. It was called the Good Samaritan killing. Uh, and what they had done, the gunman had called to the man's house uh, in the middle of the night and said they had a sick child and could he open the door to help him? And he opened the door and they, they killed William. And uh, the thing about John Weir is that he was a, a policeman at the time uh, and another policeman that was with him was a, a man called uh, William McCaughey, who's, who's now deceased. Uh, the, the thing about this killing was that John Weir and, and William McCaughey were jailed for that killing, but they weren't the two gunmen that called to the, the house. The two gunmen were uh, special branch agents. One was a leader of the Glen Ann gang, which we detail in the film. He was not only a special branch agent, he was also a member of the British Army. Uh, and this goes to the crux of what we're saying in the film. These agents, these serial killers, were run by the state, and they were involved. This man particularly, uh, Robin Jackson, his nickname was The Jackal, he was personally responsible for over a 100 killings himself, probably the biggest serial killer during the, the, the conflict in the north of Ireland. Now, Sean, the film has its Australian, had its Australian premiere last night at the Penrith Girls Club. We will screen this Friday night at, I think it's 8 or 8.30 p.m. at the Chevelle Cinema in Paddington. What, what, it's the Australian premiere. What are you hoping that Australian audiences will take from this film? Well, I think that... What this film about is it's 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 to give voice uh, to victims who were never ever afforded that voice during the conflict, but it also has ramifications for uh, for the you know for presently uh, in regards to what Britain's doing presently in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. It's also about reclaiming our cultural memory. It's also about people that come from my community saying you know we do have a voice and we do have a story to tell about the conflict. And that conflict wasn't just about a, it wasn't seen through the prism of a, a terrorist campaign. And when you say the word terrorism, what do you mean? Do you mean, do you mean state terrorism? Because we know the communities that I come from uh, were victims of state violence. And all they want to do is have the same or be afforded the, uh, the same voice as those who were, were afforded uh, during the conflict by broadcast media, etc. Absolutely. Sean, thank you so much for bringing your film here and thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks. Here with Dave Tynan, director of Dublin Old School, who is in Sydney for the Australian premiere at the Irish Film Festival. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So, first of all, your film, Dublin Old School, what is it? What is it all about? It's a uh, long, like a Bank holiday weekend uh, in the life of Jason, who's a DJ, but a kind of crap DJ. Uh, and it's him trying to play a set and he's under pressure from his boss and his, the record shop he works in. Uh, and over the course of the weekend, he keeps running into his estranged brother, who's uh, homeless and a recovering heroin addict. Uh, so it goes between kind of Jason pinballing around town and then uh, he seems to be kind of inextricably drawn back to the brother. Uh, and they have bad blood and it's about uh, those two kind of modes and then they come to a head. Yeah. Now, speaking of the Shuni experience, you I just came back from Dublin, so I no- recognise a lot of locations in this film because you filmed it um, within the city centre. You were It was incredible just the access you got to so many central parts of, of the city. Yeah, yeah. Access suggests that we're kind of, there's, uh, I don't know, 
Now we have more control over it than we did. Um, but that's always been the stuff that I've done. I've always liked kind of location shooting. That's shooting to me, going out onto a street and putting the camera on the street. You can't really fake that. Uh, yeah, it presents a load of difficulties. But uh, yeah, if you if you want to shoot in town, if it needs to look like town, and this one did, then yeah, you gotta you gotta turn up on the street. Yeah. Well, it certainly made it authentic. And then you have very different scenes, which were interior, which were these many rave sequences. How did you approach shooting these sequences? There were a lot of, there was a lot, they were really interesting, very colourful and stylistically very distinct. Yeah, so there's, I suppose I'd make the, or maybe the film would make the distinction between, say, a session or a club or a rave. Um, a rave being maybe outdoors, um, like there's one at the end. Uh a session is kind of that's probably a colloquialism, um, an after party if you like, um, and yeah. But there's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different kind of ways in which people are going through, uh, going through the night, and yeah, there's a lot of music. There's a lot of music. Yeah. And to frame these sequences, did you draw on um, your experiences of this particular culture or others, or was it um, what did you base some of these moments and um, encounters on yeah a certain amount of that is uh, I don't know I've gone out but uh, principally it's from it's adapted from a play um, Emma Curran who's the lead uh, it's from his play so he uh, both I don't want to speak for him or to his story but uh, both storylines I think come from his experience uh, and that was what first attracted me that it felt like it knew what it was talking about it felt like it was uh both the scenes with the brother and the kind of the uh, rave or session stuff uh, that it's written from within the subculture or written from within a story. Uh, that's always what I want to see in a film that I feel like somebody essentially knows what they're talking about. Now, I found the sequences with the two brothers really interesting. Certainly it's a shock for one of them to encounter the other brother after a lengthy absence near the beginning of the film. However, we're presented with this character who... Um, we're not familiar with who's come seemingly from afar, who has been through a lot and is on uh, has been through some bad experiences. But then the dynamic interestingly shifts between the two brothers, um, particularly as the perspective of the main figure uh, begins to change. And I found that dynamic really interesting throughout the film. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like Jason, who's the lead or the protagonist, uh, when he runs into Daniel, I think. I think it's in, it's important to me that we kind of we flip a couple of things on their head I suppose that it's it's not the recovering addict who's the self-pitying one it's a guy doing the party drugs um, and it's maybe if your homeless uh, recovering addict brother tells you you're going a bit hard that there's something in that uh, it's like the two of them are kind of two sides of a coin I suppose and that's they can see each other more clearly than anyone else can and can say things to each other that maybe other people wouldn't. So yeah, they're they're emotional core of the film. No, I, I think those are my favorite sequences and I really appreciated how they were shot so intimately. I noticed a lot of the um, exterior sequences, some of the party sequences were shot at a bit of the remove, but I, I think it was, I don't know if it was purposeful to make those particular sequences um, so intimate and therefore I think so personal. With the brothers? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think they're the um 
I I saw the play the first night, and that was the first thing I wanted to do uh, to kind of put those on screen because to me they're uh, that relationship is what we return to. That's the uh, we understand everything about Jason. I think in terms of that relationship. Um, otherwise, I think we might. I think he'd be a far less sympathetic character if you didn't see where he's coming from, what he's running from, um, the kind of, yeah, the family dynamic there. And that's, yeah, to try and have an intimacy to that stuff and it's probably a slightly different, it's a shift in tone as well. You go from, maybe other stuff is more kind of Jason pinballing around town on the sesh is a different thing to... uh, Every time he does that, he seems to turn a corner and uh, the brother's there and they're kind of just, uh, yeah, just bound together until they sort this out. Now, this secret scene in Dublin and around Ireland, is it a very active scene? Is that something, if you go out and then out of the town, people can engage with the right tours? Is it something that is at quite a remove or maybe waning or on alternately ever on the rise? Uh, in terms of dance music, the Ireland's had a dance music culture. Um, there's, a, I think, there's a bit of a problem with that at the moment in terms of late night venues closing. Or uh, one of the places we shot in um, District Eight got knocked down recently. Um, I think Dublin needs to work out uh, what its priorities are in terms of the seventy odd hotels going up at the moment, which is grand, but. Uh, where are those people going to go out if the, all the venues have been knocked down? Hangar is another large venue for electronic music. That's gone as well in the last few months. Uh, yeah, I think that's... Uh, Dublin's got a lot of money at the moment and seems like it's kind of back on the rise. Uh, there's problems with that. Um, and I think the film does a little bit of that. And just in terms of kind of locations and stuff that we shot, it was important to me that we were bang in the middle of town but we weren't doing expected tourist stuff we're not on O'Connell Street but we're a lane way off it where uh, where you can see like homelessness and uh, addiction and not just heroin addiction but kind of traditionally and still heroin addiction is uh, absolutely rife so I think yeah I think there's value in one of the things I like about the film is that I suppose it says that it makes the argument that there's uh value in stories in the uh right in the centre of town, even if they're not the landmarks that the kind of the tributaries, not just the main river, uh should be uh listened to as well. Well it's certainly really very relevant to an Australian audience. Um in the last state election and certainly upcoming in the federal election there's been a lot of debates about um drug policy and how to approach it from a state and federal perspective. But also I'm not sure if you're aware, but um the lockout laws have had a in Sydney have had a huge impact. Um a lot of hotels have gone up in place of a lot of live music venues. The scene has dramatically changed over the past five years. And um so from that perspective and from others, this film is going to air to an Australian audience for the first time. What are you hoping Sydney audiences and Melbourne audiences when it proceeds to Melbourne will take away from Dublin Old School? Uh, I I love when I'm watching something I feel like I get kind of put in somewhere, like kind of thrown in the deep end nearly. Uh, I think the film does a bit of that. I think you'll see Dublin in a way you might not. Uh, possibly you might not, even if you visited, that it uh, is kind of 
unapologetically specific, even though obviously the themes are universal and a lot of the music's uh, universal. But there's yeah, it you'll get a window into something that's pretty uh, new. It's also funnier than probably what we've discussed. This uh, it might not. I think it'd be irresponsible to make a film that uh, wouldn't show some of the downsides or dangers of drug use, but equally to not show that there's, uh, like Jason at one point says to Daniel, uh, Daniel asks him why he takes drugs, and Jason says, because it's great crack. I think he changes his viewpoint by the end, but uh, there's, yeah, there's laughs as well as uh, some people cry. Well, the film is screening at 10 o'clock on Saturday night at the Chevelle in Pennington, and I'm looking forward to catching with the crowd. Dave, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.